Hello and welcome to the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 259, Blahovich versus Adesanya. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com, and with me is Keith Schillen. Keith is executive producer of the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network, as well as the Sherdog Radio Network, where he is host and creator of numerous shows, including MMA Past, Present, and Future, and of course, the Schillen and Duffy Show. Keith, how are you today? Dude, I'm doing good, man. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I, I want to jump right into just a couple of overall observations about this card. On, on the previews as well as the recaps that we do for every uh, major card, we're pretty quick to say when a card looks really thin on paper or yeah. when it loses a couple fights and what comes out the other end just it didn't deliver. We talk about the the overall watered-down nature of the product now that the UFC is putting on 40 or 50 cards a year. I'm going to share an observation that Sherdog's official preview writer, Tom Feely, threw out this week. This is a 15-fight card. You could cut the entire five-fight main card off of this, rename it Fight Night, Cruz versus Kenny, and it would be an average Fight Night card. Yeah, that's perfect observation. I think there is, as you mentioned, Kenny and Cruz could headline a card. All five fights on the main card could easily headline a card. The top three could headline uh, a pay-per-view. You know, we'd we'd complain about Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson as a pay-per-view main event, but it still could headline a pay-per-view. Even, like, going down, like, you know, like, Sousa fight. Like, that could headline an Invicta card. Like, this is just a loaded... And then there's 15 fights. Usually when we have that many fights, it's so, you know, wishy-washy, not that exciting, like... Pretty much almost every single fight has relevance in whether it's the rankings or just interest in a young prospect. Like, I'm very excited for this card. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of the things that I kind of look at as the more subtle indicators of the health of a card, like how many people on this card are below 500 in, in the UFC, there is nobody, or I'm sorry, there are two fighters out of the 30 on this card who are under 500 in the UFC. There's only one fighter making his debut on this card, and he's an undefeated prospect. You know, a lot of times we'll have a, a lot of debuts, and they're not necessarily the most highly touted debuts. It's just the UFC had to grab somebody because they needed a body. That yeah. isn't the case for this card. There are five undefeated, undefeated fighters on this card. That might be some kind of record. I'm going to go backward and look. It's It's ridiculous, the kind of riches that are on this card. I can tell you right now, anybody who listens to our recaps, knows that we do a segment called The Cut List, consisting of fighters that we believe should be cut just to make room for new talent to come up onto the roster. I can tell you right now, my cut list is going to be zero on Saturday night because there there won't be a single person on this card who's lost more than two in a row. Yeah, I, I just want to make fair warning that that doesn't mean the UFC won't cut them, as we saw oh, yeah. <laughs> two two legendary heavyweights get cut this week. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, before I forget, we get started. We're taping this one day later than we normally do. I want to apologize for that. That was my fault, a personal reason. We had to push it back. So if someone's a listener and they you know usually look for it very late Wednesday night or Thursday morning and they didn't get it, I apologize. Hopefully that won't be a thing moving forward. I am sure they will forgive us, especially once we dig into this 15-fight uh, treasure. You ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. 
The UFC 259 prelims start with a bantamweight matchup between Mario Bautista and Trevin Jones. Bautista, the 27-year-old Arizonan, is 8-1 overall. He is 2-1 in the UFC, having defeated Miles Johns at UFC 247, before that having defeated Jin Su Sun, and having lost his debut on short notice to Corey Sandhagen all the way back in January of 2019. He takes on Jones. The 30-year-old Guamanian is 12-6 and six with one no contest. He is officially 0-0 in the UFC, having defeated Tamora Valiev uh, in a nice little comeback victory back in August of 2020, having uh, had that overturned due to a positive test for cannabis. So uh, while the memory of the fight lingers in our minds, it is officially scrubbed from his record. Bautista is a comfortable favorite here. He's sitting around minus 225, minus 230 right now, where you can get Jones at around uh, plus 190. Keith, uh, who do you have in this one? Yeah, I just want to back up for a second. That fact that Trevor Jones had this historic comeback, gets it taken away because he smoked weed. But Josh Barnett tested positive for steroids. God knows how many times now. One of them was to win the UFC title, and that fight is still a win on his record. Uh, how crazy is that? Anyways, <clears throat> going into this fight, uh, Batista is a favorite, and that's because he's just a more technically sound fighter. Uh, he's a rangy striker uh, because he's you know he's long and lengthy. He uses movements and feints really well to set up his attacks. Uh, good at bouncing in and out of range. We saw that in um, his fight against. Uh, What's the force MMA guy? Um, Miles Johns. Miles Johns. Miles Johns. Sorry, I apologize. Already starting with me. Can't think of names. I'm terrible <laughs> at this. Uh, he's good at cutting different angles when he's blitzing. It's never like the same straight on. It might be like a he might blitz and sidestep real quick. Uh, he does. He's not a big power shot guy. He's more of a um, you know cumulative guys he's, he's gonna rack up the points he's not gonna really knock you out even though he did hurt johns but that was with a you know perfectly timed knee uh he he has been hurt to the body i mean even um i'm trying to think of a fight where i, I now i'm trying to remember because this there's a lot of notes for these ones <laughs> so i don't know which fight it was that i wrote down he was hurt to the body uh good in the clinch though i really like his clinch though i like his creativity as we said the step in knees the flying knee hit on on miles johns a weak offensive wrestler, um, but you know, actually, I'd just say a weak wrestler, or like not a great def- you know, defensive wrestler. But when you take him down, he has really improved his ability to get up. Like he gets, he fights to get himself back up. Um, move over to J- uh, John Jones. Excuse me, I almost said uh, Giles, Chevin Giles, Chevin <laughs> Jones. Uh, Southpaw. He's a counter striker. He's got some fast hands. Uh, really nice straight left. His Counter right, like uh, is probably his best punch. Uh, it, it's the it's the one that he actually floored Tal, uh, Timo Valiev with, and he kept looking for it in the fight. Um, he does keep his hands very wide though, like um, which is which is you know almost like a karate style with the ways how his hands are so wide, and um, he uses that because he looks for elbows, and it's when you where you get your arms out wide, you can kind of turn. It over to land the elbow. I don't like that because it loses power. And also, when you punch, your elbow's kind of like chicken wing a little bit, which which I don't like. He does have some hard kicks though, 
but he doesn't check any kicks. I mean, we saw Valley of having a lot of success with the kicks. Uh, he also struggled when he was pressed back by Valley where he was forced to kind of react and fight off his back foot. And Valley also hurt him to the body. Uh, he's pretty well rounded though. Like he has good timings on a takedown. He's got some uh, nice entries. He has four submission wins. And to his credit, he has incredible heart. I and mean, we saw that in the Valley fight. A lot of people would have been stopped. He found a way to keep fighting on. That said, as I said in the very beginning, I like Batiste in this matchup. I think Jones might have some moments, and Batista's going to have to be aware of his power. However, Batista is pretty technically sound fighter. I think he can pick him up with range and more volume, and I actually think he might even get a late stoppage. So give me Batista by third-round TKO. I love that you said uh, Jones will have his moments because that's the the feeling I get from Jones. E- even you know prior to his fight with Valiev, which is – sort of the ultimate exaggerated example of that, Jones is often a guy who's losing the fight until he wins. You know, he has all the weapons, especially on the feet. You know, like you said, he's he's a hard hitter. He throws a variety of strikes, you know, some of which are kind of unorthodox. And because of that, he's sometimes just kind of losing the fight until he catches somebody with something unexpected and starts rolling downhill, which is exactly what he did to, to Valiev. A, a year or two ago, I might have called this an upset special waiting to happen because Batista was a lot more uh, kind of aggressive and wild uh, early on in his career. Certainly uh, in in Combate and well, his, the Sanhagen fight was a little too short to really tell. Plus, Sanhagen's a top five fighter. But at this point, I like Batista just to be patient, not get uh, drawn in to the kind of wild exchanges that Jones wants and needs in order to win. And I, I favor him to to get a pretty straightforward win. I could see him getting the finish late as well, but I, I am going to pick him to just win via a pretty one-sided decision. Jones might have his moments, but they won't even be enough to win him a round, much less the fight. We now move to the lightweight division, the first of many matchups featuring alumni of Dana White's Contender Series and the first of that aforementioned large handful of undefeated fighters appearing on this card as Uros Medic makes his UFC debut, uh, welcomed by Alon Cruz. Medic, the 27-year-old Serbian by way of Alaska, is a perfect 6-0 in his professional career. He won via first-round knockout on Dana White's Contender Series last August, putting away Mikey Gonzalez. He takes on Cruz. The 31-year-old is 8-3 overall. He is 0-1 since making uh, his own debut off of Dana White's Contender Series Season 3. He uh, lost a wild 90-second fight to Spike Carlisle back in uh, February of last year. Odds are fairly close on this one, but Medich is favored to win his debut. He's Available around minus 165, Cruz plus 145, plus 150 on the comeback. Keith, you've probably watched a good bit more tape on both these gentlemen than I have. Uh, how do you see this one playing out? Yeah, these are contender series guys, so I've seen a, a lot of them. Not that high on either guy. They weren't, you know, they weren't guys that jumped off the page at me when I watched them. They weren't guys when I think back at seasons that, you know, jump out. Uh, I'll start with Medish. He's not a great athlete. But he's very big. He's just a large, lightweight. He's extremely long and lengthy, which is funny when I say because when I when I talk about his opponents, he's even longer. Uh, he's a southpaw. He's got a he's a kickboxer. He's actually a lot of kickboxing experience. He's an accurate striker. I'd say he has plus power, not you know crushing power. Tons of kicks, 
And I like that he kind of reverses what we're used to in the fact that he kicks and follows with punches a lot instead of you know, people punching and then following with kicks. He likes to kind of kick you, try to get you to force drop your hands, and then he comes over the top with shots. Just something that we don't see a lot, so it actually lands for him. Um, his his body kicks and leg kicks took out Mikey Rolls in the contender series, so that was really nice to see, especially because that was a step up in competition because this is a guy at Alaska Fighting Championship kind of feasted on low level, so it was nice to see him actually get a quality win. Takedown defense, though, is a major issue. Uh, he gets taken down fairly easy, and then he kind of lays on his back instead of scrambling to his feet because he is a submission threat off his back. He attacks uh, um, kind of a leg specialist. like He'll go for knee bars, heel hooks. And the other thing that I'm worried about him is his cardio. Not that I've seen him gas, but... He hasn't gone past the second round, so you have to, you know, wonder what happens if he gets deeper waters. Not saying it's a weakness, but, you know, obviously a question mark. We'll go to Cruz. When I just talked about um, Medish being huge, Cruz is even bigger. I mean, he is so tall, long, and lengthy. He's a southpaw. He does switch his stances, though. Not very technical, and... We didn't see it in his last fight against Spike Carlisle, but in some other fights I've seen kind of like a low-output guy throwing one strike at a time, looking just to work from range. But it's funny because he worked from range, but he won't throw his jab nearly enough. Uh, he's got a lot of technical uh, deficiencies defensively. He keeps his chin high in the air, back straight up. Uh, he you know, he has these long, long legs, so you'll see a lot of kicks. Um, some of the like unorthodox style kicks, like a side kick, you know, karate side kick, some cheap kicks. He'll throw out the spinning kicks, but they're not that effective. He is good in the clinch, though, because, you know, he's so tall, he used that to his advantage. He can get knees and up fairly easily, looks for some elbows. He likes the, the trip takedowns. Uh, he's not a big, like, entry, uh, you know, shooting through your hips kind of guy. He's good in scrambles where he can get the back, and he is a submission threat. Um, not that he's a wrestler, but I, I do want to mention that I did see him throw a suplex on an opponent on, on the regional scene. So as far as a prediction, this is a tough one to call. Like I mentioned, I'm not that high in either guy. Both are also facing probably the longest guy they've either faced. So I wonder who, you know, who's be able to adjust to that. I'm going to go with Medish simply because he's the more technically sound fighter. Um, Though Cruz has a big, big advantage on the ground, and if he can turn us into a grab match, he, he should probably win there. I'm like 50-50 on this one. I'm very split, so this is no confidence. But give me Medish, and I'll say by split decision. In looking at this fight, I went through pretty much the same thought process that you kind of laid out there. Uh, <clears throat> Medich has, yeah, he... He looked good against Gonzalez on the contender series, but that was a really short fight. And before that, in AFC, he was, as you said, not facing the highest level uh, competition and didn't even drop down to lightweight until I think his last fight there. Uh, I mean, he's, he's fought more times at welterweight than at lightweight, I believe. Uh, so I think it's fair to call the cardio into question or just question what it will look like after that cut. You know, if he has to go into the third round, which it sounds like you're favoring to happen, so am I. I don't see uh, a finish here necessarily. Uh, Medich's takedown defense is definitely a liability, but uh, Cruz is not the guy who's going to test that, I don't think. I think this fight might end up on the ground, 
just off of one guy being hurt or some guy just taking an opportunistic, you know, trip or, or throw out of the clinch. But Cruz won't pursue the takedown. I I think I mean I think Cruz is happiest uh, as what you've described as an all the way out or all the way in striker. He likes to be an out striker. He also likes uh, the clinch, even if uh, Spike Carlisle made him pretty uncomfortable there. I just think he's going to be able to, uh, to dictate a little more than than Medich where this fight takes uh, place, and more of it will take place in his comfort zone. So I mean, give me Cruz by decision. But I'm open to being really surprised here because, again, as you said, these are two guys that have not been tested against super high-level competition, and they might be uh, not not only the lengthiest opponent each other has faced, but maybe the the highest-level opponent each other has faced, except for uh, Cruz's loss to Carlisle. Next up on the UFC 259 prelims, it is women's strawweights as Lavinia Souza and Amanda Lemos prepare to square off. Souza, the 29-year-old Brazilian, is 14 and 2 overall. She is 3 and 1 in the UFC since joining from Invicta. She defeated Ashley Yoder last August at UFC 252. Prior to that, she lost a unanimous decision to Brianna Van Buren at UFC Fight Night Deuteronomy versus Lad all the way back in July of 2019. Lemos, the 33-year-old from Northern Brazil, is 8-1 and 1. Overall, she is two and one in the UFC. She lost her debut at Bantamweight to Leslie Smith back in 2017, took two and a half years off, came back at strawweight, and has won two straight since then, defeating Miranda Granger and Mizuki in a way. Lemos is a comfortable favorite. Uh, she's minus 225 right now, where you can get Souza around plus 190. I'll jump right out and say that. I think this line is off. I think this line is, is pretty badly off. I was surprised to see Lemos as a, a two to one favorite. I, to me, I, I see this as close to a pick'em, but I can see why people would think Lemos is going to, to beat her. She's, uh, I mean, she wasn't particularly underpowered at bantamweight. She is a a burly bruiser at strawweight. It's kind of like a less accomplished version of what uh, Jessica Andrade did, where Andrade was a, a fringe contender at bantamweight, dropped to strawweight, and won the title just by, you know, punting people out of the cage. Uh, and Lamos is is uh, great at imposing imposing her fight on on the other fighter, uh, slowing down fighters who want a frantic kickboxing contest, uh, and I think, I mean, that's what she's going to try to do to Souza. I mean, Souza wants a frantic, uh, I mean, she wants a frantic grappling match. I, I, I see her as a scrambler. I see her as, you know, just a, a really opportunistic submission artist. The question will be whether she can make that work on, on Lemos, whether she can get the fight to the ground, whether she can get it to the ground in the positions uh, she wants. But, I mean, I see her being able to do so. I don't know if she will finish uh, Lemos. Uh, you know, Lemos hasn't been finished, or I mean, she hasn't even lost at, at strawweight. But uh, I, I like Souza in this one. Uh, give me Souza by decision. I, 
I don't know if this is my upset special of the night, but I, I feel pretty strongly that Sosa's got this one. I think she's going to have Lamos on, on the ground in at least uh, two of the rounds, probably have her in some dangerous situations, and just uh, win it on the scorecards. There you go, my man. That's a pretty uh, hefty underdog pick. So uh, if if that's not your upset special, I, I'm I'm looking forward to what is. Uh, I'll start with Polish this power. Yeah. Oh, I I was thinking uh, Australia New Zealand power in the co-main event, maybe. <laughs> Megan Anderson by toe scratch of the cornea. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, she's uh, been practicing it. There you go. I mean, hey, it's, it's, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll start with this one. It, we talked off air, and you said like this fight shouldn't be buried on the prelims. I agree. And then when you look through the card, and you're like, oh man, it's just a loaded card, and it's just circumstance. Uh, I'll start with Souza. You, you had some high praise of her, and and I understand she's well rounded. Uh, she's she switches stance a lot, but I think she's – I said this last time we talked about her, or, or I don't know if it was last time with you, or maybe I just did another person's podcast. She's better in the orthodox stance. Nice jab. Uh, she kind of has a pillaring defense, kind of hides behind her arms. Uh, I don't like that she can be backed up against the cage. She throws inside kicks. You know, she likes uh, – doesn't really target the calf. She more has that Makohua, Pedro Hizzle style upper thigh kicks. Solid wrestler, though, as you mentioned. Advances position. Her ground and pound is 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 busy. I want to say it's good, but it's busy. You know, like she, you know, she knows she has to get to the ground, but she's a BJJ black belt. Serious threat from both top and bottom. The one issue I've always had with Souza is she's undersized, and she's probably an atom weight. Um, she can kind of be bullied up a little bit. I also haven't seen major improvements since her days in Invicta. Like, there was a time when she was, you know, one of the top girls in Invicta where I really thought that she might be someone to really jump into the top five, maybe even be a title challenger, and I haven't seen that same girl. Like, she's still very talented, as you said. I also, I remember when I watched the Brianna Van Buren fight, a girl who's also a little on the side, someone that I think she could have, even though I ticked Van Buren, someone thought she could have been more competitive. And I didn't like her IQ. Like, she didn't change it up at all. She wanted to, like, play this kick outside kickboxing match. And Van Buren didn't have anything to do with it. She wanted to close this one to get to the clinch. And and she didn't make any changes in that fight, which which bothered me. And I think I might have said that last time when we talked about her. Moving to Lemos. Lemos is very athletic. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. She also switched his stance. She's explosive. She explodes off her back foot. She, like, springs off of it. Fast hands, tight hooks. Uh, she, though they do kind of come a little low, uh, she kind of throws a little from her hips. She actually she reminds me a lot of Tiago Santos, who's fighting later on in the card, like, the you know, a female version. A lot of feints, good power. I mean, like... Uh, she knocked out Mizuki Inoue in the last fight, which you don't see, you know, women straw weight often. Hard kicks. One thing I didn't like, though, is even though she's big and she's strong, there was times when Inoue, who, you know, was it wasn't that close of a fight, but Inoue was able to push her against the cage and kind of hold it, and she would get out-muscled, which I was like, well, that was surprising. Though when she was in that clinch, she was landing some nice elbows in there, so maybe she thought she was winning in that exchange, so maybe that's why she was not, like, you know, no, uh, pummeling underneath and kind of turning her. She was kind of sitting, sitting there, and she did have it. She did have a judo throw. I've actually seen her that day before, so she likes little trips in there. Good ground upon herself. Susan's gonna have to make this a wrestling match, and I can see that avenue of victory. 
I just don't think she's going to be able to because Lemos is. I think is not only is is Susan undersized. Lemos is big, big for the weight class. Uh, I actually think she can match her speed, and she might even be the faster one. I think she p- picks her part from distance, and and we're going to be really on different sides because like I think she wins fairly easily. So give me give me Lemos by decision. We move up to the welterweight division as Sean Brady takes on Jake Matthews. Brady. The 28-year-old Philadelphian is a perfect 13-0 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 3-0 in the UFC, having defeated Christian Aguilera, Ismail Nardiev, and in his debut back in October of 2019, Court McGee. He's taking on Matthews. The Celtic kid, unbelievably, is just 26 years old and in his 15th UFC fight. He is 10-4 with the promotion. He fought twice last year, defeating Diego Sanchez at UFC 253 in September and Emil Weber-Mack in February at UFC Fight Night, Felder versus Hooker. Uh, Brady, a comfortable favorite here, uh, minus 210. Matthews available around plus 175 or plus 180 as the underdog. Uh, Keith, who do you have in this one? Well, that's a crazy stat about Jake Matthews. Um, Matthews... He's pretty athletic. I give him that. He does hit hard, though he can be a little low output sometimes. Single single strikes. His punches can also be looping too. Uh, his counter right hand is his best strike, which probably goes with his low output. He might be you know waiting on his opponent. Can be also be a headhunter. Uh, he bet can back straight up. Um, he he does defend attacks with movement which i like that's like your first defense is always should be your footwork so i like that he has that um good entries good reaction reactionary entries too might be why he uses movement so much sometimes guys chase uh heavy top pressure good ground and pound looks to advance to a better position and he has a submission threat though his last fight against diego central obviously was one side fight I didn't like that he didn't stop Diego. Like I felt like this was a softball toss to him, and he should have knocked out of the park. And he was way too cautious against someone who wasn't a threat at all. Moving to Sean Brady, I like Sean Brady. This is the guy that I was talking about before he was in the UFC. Uh, I wrote a column a long time ago about guys the UFC should sign. He was on my list. Uh, good boxer, combination boxer, quick hands, hits hard. His left hook is his best strike. I love that he targets the body. That's that shows experience in the striking, hard leg kicks, but he's also well rounded. He's got some good entries, uh, decent takedowns against the, the fence. He's very physically strong. If he can't catch you down, he can just press you against the fence, kind of lean on you, wear you out that way. He can battle in those close quarters with striking. He has kind of he, he has like slicing elbows. He likes to throw. With it. He's kind of like he's got a little mean streak on him, where he get a little Matt Brown in him, where he he like seems like he likes that. You know, like trading elbows kind of thing. Uh, if he gets on top, he's got a good, like he's got a good grappling, smothering top game, strong ground and pound. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. You hear about his guillotine. Paul Feldo always talks about his like the tightest guillotine in the game. Um, and he took out Christian Aguilar with it, and he only had one arm in and and put him out cold. Uh, Matthews is the right step up in competition for Brady. Like Brady's been feeding on the little lower level guys or kind of like washed up guys like a Court McGee. So I think it could be a good test, but I think Brady's going to pass this test with flying colors. I think Brady is better everywhere. I think he beats him up on the feet. I think he, 
And I think he can. You know what? I'm going to say it because Paul Phillips keeps talking about Matthew shoots, and a lot of times he shoots without a t- without a setup. I'm going to say uh, I'm going to say it's going to be two in a row. And I think Brady catches him in that guillotine. So give me Brady by second round submission. I'm totally with you on this one. It took me a little longer to get on the Brady Express. You know, I I didn't even strongly favor him to beat Court McGee in his debut back in 2019. Uh, I was wrong. And he has looked uh, he's looked better in each of his three uh, UFC appearances. I mean, he he got the finish over Christian Aguilera, but even before the finish came, uh, he was looking better than he had against Nardiev, and he looked better there than he had against McGee. He is definitely developing in a way that Matthews, frankly, kind of hasn't. I was as shocked as you were when I realized that this is uh, Jake Matthews's 15th UFC fight because I still feel as though he's that 20-year-old kid who, oh, man, he's going to turn the corner any minute. And he's really not turned the corner. He's still He still has the same basic uh, tool set that he had 10 fights ago. And it's still, I mean, good enough to win more than he loses. He's 10-4 and four in the UFC. But I agree with you that... Uh, his last three fights, you know, Rostam Akman, Emil Mech, and Diego Sanchez. Akman and Mech are both out of the UFC, just kind of washed out as not being quite UFC level. And Diego Sanchez, by all rights, should be out of the UFC, but obviously they're they're never going to cut the dude. Uh, Matthew should have styled on these people if if he had developed any, you know, in in the last four or five years, and he hasn't. Yeah, this is going to be a showcase for Brady. I and if he gets the finish. Yeah, I think it'll either be through late ground and pound or by snatching uh, a guillotine or something similar off of uh, Matthew's shot. Either one that's a desperation shot or just an ill-advised one. Uh, give me Brady by third-round finish. I'm going to say TKO. Maybe just hurts him, follows him down with some ground and pound, but I could certainly see him hurting him, jumping on and grabbing a guillotine or taking the back and throwing on a rear naked choke as well. We move up to the light heavyweight division and another battle of Dana White's Contender Series alums. Yet another debuting undefeated fighter as Kennedy Nzuchukwu takes on Carlos Olberg. Nzuchukwu, the Nigerian by way of Dallas, is 7-1 overall. He is 1-1 in the UFC since joining off of Season 2 of Dana White's Contender Series. In the UFC, he lost to Paul Craig via third-round triangle choke because that is what Paul Craig does. And then he came back with a win over Darko Stosic at UFC on ESPN5, Covington versus Lawler, back in August of 2019. He is making his return after over a year and a half away from the cage. He'll be welcoming Olberg. Mr. Marvelous, the 30-year-old New Zealander, is a perfect 3-0 in mixed martial arts. That's a bit deceptive, however, as the first and second fights in his career are separated by about seven years during which he undertook a kickboxing career. He appeared on Dana White's Contender Series last November, knocking out Bruno Oliveira in the first round. He now makes his debut, and he is favored to win pretty handily. Olberg out there, a nearly 2-1 to one favorite, and Dechukwu available around plus 205, plus 210 as the underdog. Keith, how do you see this playing out between the promising Mr. Olberg and the titanic Mr. Nzuchukwu? Yeah, it's just, we, we talked off air about this one. This is a tough one to pick because there's so many unknowns, um, especially on the Olberg side. Um, Nzuchukwu is so... There was when I was doing the contender series study on him a while ago, 
uh, I don't remember who it was, but they were comparing him to John Jones, which was like the laziest comparison of all time, simply because they're big, long, lengthy black guys who have like an 82 inch reach. So he must be John Jones. Like this, the skill set between him and John Jones are light years apart. <laughs> um, so, but saying that, I wasn't trying to make a knock on Nchukwu. It just mean like, dude, dude come on, guys. It's, we're talking about John Jones. Uh, anyways, he is a massive light heavyweight who, despite being huge, has surprisingly good volume. He just marches forward, uh, very basic strikes. And I, I say that a lot, basic strikes. And I, I don't mean that as basic as in skill-wise, just, you know, your basic double jab cross combo. Um he does struggle to keep his length, though, because of his marching forward style. He mostly will fight in the pocket, which is um, aggravating. You know, I, that didn't work for Stefan Struff, like guys who couldn't keep their length. Uh, it's also surprising how much like lack of power he has when you look at his frame. Like we talked about, he looks like a heavyweight, but you don't see like big knockout punches. He keeps his chin a little high. He lacks head movement kind of pillars for defense uh which you know I, I that's i think the pillar is like the lowest level of defense when we if we're going you know up the range uh i like his front kick though i like his step in knees uh clinch is a strength uh he likes like a plum style clinch where you just go lock onto the back of your head knees and elbows in there can sneak in a takedown though i wouldn't call him a wrestler but if he's on top heavy top pressure good ground and pound Kind of just throwing elbows and hammers from down. He just has that like big guy ground and pound that just if you're built like him, it's gonna work. Uh, he's not a submission threat. His takedown defense is bad. We saw that again in his last fight against Stoisic. Um Though he, he's good at getting back up because he's just big and strong, and his cardio is good. Uh, move over to Olberg. I said this when I did the contender series preview. I have very limited coverage of this guy, and. Even adding in the contender series, like I'm, he's still a major unknown. He's only three fights, though he does have a lot of high-level kickboxing experience, which obviously you like. Uh, very athletic. I like how calm he is. He kind of has a little Adesanya feel to him in that sense, where they both um, they don't seem tensed up at all. Their arms are loose. He's fast. He's accurate. Uses a lot of feints. Um, good with uh, both hands. Um, he also, he, oh, I mentioned to talk about his feints. He feints with his hands. He also feints with his hips, which, you know, I've talked about. I really like when guys do that. Good power. He really understands distance. Uh, he knows how to kind of land from outside. He keeps his right hand glued to his head in a high, high guard type defense. Good kicks. He likes those John Jones oblique kicks. So there you go. I, I mentioned John Jones with both these guys now. Uh, I haven't seen anything except for one fight where his ground game was tested and he did stuff takedown attempts, though I didn't see anything offensively. This is a battle between two fighters from like two of the best teams out there, which I, I always find interest, Fortis MMA and City Kickboxing. I'm going to go with Olberg with less than zero confidence, simply because he appears to be an elite striker, and Intrigue doesn't look elite anywhere. Oberg's ceiling appears so much higher, but it wouldn't surprise me if Nchukwu beats him because, you know, the, he's still kind of learning on the job. But I think he catches Nchukwu. I'll say he catches him in the second round, and I'll say Oberg 
uh, starts the night for City Kickboxing off to a bang with a second round TKO. Unlike you, I, you know, I've never been one to scout the Contender Series in advance. So unless somebody appearing on the Contender Series is someone I've seen a lot of because I follow their regional promotion, it's often the first time I see them. So the first time I ever saw Kennedy and Zuchukwu fight, it was actually his second appearance on Dana White's Contender Series when he beat Dennis Bryant. So I knew really knew nothing about him other than what I heard from the announcers and what I saw in the cage. What I saw in the cage was he basically beat the dude with nothing but head kicks. Uh, and he like called a blow to the back of the head on himself and kind of like backed away and Herb Dean had to assure him that it was okay to keep fighting. And my thought was, does this guy not know how MMA works? Like, is he that new? Is is he too nice to excel in this sport? It, it was a pretty uh, funny experience. My, my first experience seeing Kennedy and Zuchuku. Obviously, neither of those are are the case. He has all the strengths you mentioned. He is, I haven't, I don't know for a fact, but he must be the biggest light heavyweight in the UFC in terms of just height, wingspan, and walking weight. He's right up there with Johnny Walker in just the how does this guy even make light heavyweight uh, category. The little I've seen of Alberg, I do just think he's going to be a much niftier striker. Uh, just, I, I, I think, I, I think this is a matchup that's being made to showcase Olberg. I think the UFC must think it, it has something on its hands here. Uh, Nzuchiku has plenty of potential, plenty of, of uh, room to still improve. He's very young, but this is going to be Olberg's night. Uh, I have Olberg by knockout as well, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say uh, second round as well. We now move up to the men's flyweight division where the veteran Tim Elliott takes on Jordan Espinoza. Elliott, the 34-year-old product of Glory MMA and Fitness, is 16, 11, and 1 overall. He is a slightly deceptive 5 and 9 in the UFC, uh, having taken on almost pure top 10 competition from the time of his debut. He's actually a former UFC title challenger, having won the right to contend for Demetrius Johnson's flyweight belt as the winner of the 24th season of The Ultimate Fighter. He'll be taking on Espinoza. The 31-year-old is 15-8 and eight with one no contest overall. He is a two-time alum of Dana White's Contender Series and is 2-3 and three in the UFC since joining off of uh, his second try on the Contender Series. Espinoza is a slight favorite. He is available at minus 125 as of the time of recording, where Elliot is out there at even money, or you can even find him at plus 105. Keith, how do you see this one playing out? Well, this is this is an interesting matchup, as is always with flyweights. Uh, I think this is, you know, you just mentioned the line being extremely close. That's why I think the fight's going to play out. Uh, I'll start with Tim Elliott. Unorthodox striking is the first thing I think of. He has like a bob and weave style, but it's not like a Mike Tyson tight. He kind of like over exaggerates it, where he's almost uh, like looks like he's falling off, almost got kind of like drunken style. Uh, you got to like his, you know, his volume kind of just throws, stays busy. Not a lot of power though, um, but you know, he's got an insane pace. Uh, I give credit to his chin. Like I haven't, he gets hit a lot, but I haven't seen him, you know, hurt in a long, you know, visibly hurt really bad. 
tons of wrestling though. He has a very funk style wrestling. We've talked about this in the past with guys. He when he shoots, he's not necessarily looking to get necessarily get on your hips and get you down. He's looking to start an exchange or start a scramble, and he usually can win those. Uh, he is very aggressive, and that's what you get with a lot of funk style wrestlers where he'll jump to a submission, lose the position, and, and he's okay with that because he could just continues rolling. He wants to continue, and, and he thinks basically when the, you know, it all weighs down, as you talk, like you, you mentioned before, like two cats fighting, he'll be the one that ends up when it stops on top in the better position. Uh, kind of a low fight IQ based on that. Like I've seen him grapple with guys that are better than him. I've seen him, unfortunately, strike with guys that are better strikers with him. Um, he kind of finds ways to lose. Move over to Espinoza. Espinoza is fast. Uh, uses movement well. Uh, he he likes to kind of get his opponents to try to chase him with it, you know while he's moving. Throws quick combos. I would say his counter right hand is his best strike. He makes the mistake though of dropping his hands. I, I think I said this last time we talked about him. He and it stood out to me again when I did tape study him. He he admires his work a little bit. Like he'll throw some strikes. And then he doesn't recharge it back to his face real quick, which would leave him open to counters. Nice kicks, um, body kicks, uh, has a quick high kick. Um, I like that he finishes combos with his kicks, and that's actually where he get blasted sometimes when he's throwing. Um, his He doesn't check kicks. I mean, David Dvorak tore up his leg to the point where he was going back to the corner and complaining about his legs. Uh, he is a solid wrestler, but this guy was, a, I believe, he was a high school state champion wrestler. Though he doesn't set up his attacks well, he shoots from way too far away. He is a submission threat. He likes to attack the head. Uh, looks for like darts, chokes, and guillotines. Though he he's been taken down like a lot for someone who is, you know, a high school state champion wrestler. It might have been one of those ones where it might have been the right weight class, or might be. Might be one of those ones that's like a regional champion gets called state champion. I don't. I don't know. I'm not. I shouldn't be questioning like that. But just, <laughs> um, he's also been submitted a couple of times. So I don't like that. So this is a tough one to call. Espinosa is more explosive and and more technical. But Elliot is a dirt dog um, that can beat someone by just digging deeper. I'm not that high in either one at this point in their careers. Both seem to find a way to lose. That said, I'm going to take Elliot. I think his grappling skills are still better than Espinosa's as I was just trashing his wrestling. Uh, I think some weird scrambles will happen. And I actually think Elliot's going to catch a submission in one of these weird scrambles. So give me Elliot by third round submission. Oh, it, it wasn't much of an upset pick, but I was I, I was thinking I might be the only one here. I'm, I'm with you. I just haven't seen... I haven't seen anything from uh, Espinoza to make me think that he's more than just borderline UFC material. I mean, he's he's two and three in the UFC, but there's a hard dividing line. The guys he's lost to are all very good. I mean, Alex Perez just challenged for the title, and I think Matt Schnell and David Dvorak are both the real deal. Like, they're both, you know, future top ten guys in the division. Mark De La Rosa and Eric Shelton are both out of the UFC at this point, and were two of the the lower level flyweights the UFC assigned to that division in in a while. So there's a pretty clear dividing line uh to who who Jordan Espinosa beats and who he loses to in the UFC. I think Elliot is above that dividing line and specifically I think Espinosa is probably going to oblige the kind of wrestle heavy scramble heavy fight that Elliot really really wants. I have to give you credit 
for calling it his drunken boxing because that's that totally just now makes me think of like Jackie Chan just like swaying way out from side to side where it looks like he's about to fall over. It's it's totally his his drunken master, uh, but I don't think that'll come into play a whole lot. Uh, Espinoza likes to box, but when the going gets rough, he wants to wrestle, and I, that's going to play right into what Tim Elliott wants. I don't know if he gets the finish, uh, but give me Tim Elliott to put him in enough peril in at least two out of three rounds to win the decision and survive in advance, move to six and nine in the UFC. <laughs> we stay in the flyweight division and have a intriguing young prospect matchup between Rogerio Bontarin and Kai Car France. Bontarin, the 28-year-old Brazilian, is 16-2 and two with one no contest. He is 2-1 and one in the UFC since joining off of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. He fought most recently last February, taking a unanimous decision loss to Ray Borg at UFC Fight Night Anderson versus Blahovich 2. Prior to that, he defeated Holly Paiva by first-round TKO due to cut, and he won his UFC debut in an eye-opening win over, at the time, extremely highly regarded prospect Magomed Biblatov. Cara France, the 27-year-old New Zealander, is 21-9 and with one no contest overall. He is 4-2 and in the UFC. Uh, he appeared most recently last September, losing by second-round submission to Brandon Royball at UFC 253. Prior to that, he took a unanimous decision victory over Tyson Nam at UFC Fight Night Felder versus Hooker. Cara France is just a slight favorite here, uh, available around minus 135 or minus 140. Rogerio uh, Bontarin is out there at plus 120 as the underdog. Keith, who do you have in this one? Well, um, this is a fun fight. Like, the so we this is back to back flyaway fights, which you know I enjoy that. Uh, Kyra France, he's well rounded. He's got a you know he has a high defensive guard, works behind a jab, a lot of straight punches. His straight right is kind of his go to punch. Uh, his I mean he was slipping and landing the right hand a lot against Brandon Moreno because he has good head movement, bounces his head off the center line. Uh, just you know just but he bounces his head off the center line but uses it offensively, not knows there defensively. So that's what he was landing against Moreno. Um, I said this a while ago. He has he been developing this Robert Whitaker slipping high kick where he slips to one side. Like we see, we were just talking about him head movement and then throws a high kick on the other side. And uh, it works for Robert Whitaker. I think it can eventually work for Kai Kara France. Uh, calf kicks is another thing that he likes to target. He doesn't like pressure, though. He likes being the bull. He Brandon Moreno... Uh, was a good example of that kind of forced him on his back foot. Good in scrambles, though. Uh, solid takedown defense. Uh, when you do take him down, he has a little unorthodox style where he might necessarily sprawl. He'll look like a switch or a spladle uh, when he's getting taken down to kind of, again, just create that scramble. Uh, though I don't like that he was submitted in his last fight. So that uh, is definitely troublesome. Uh, Bunterin is your wrestle boxer, switches stances, uh, likes to work in the pocket, stays tight, good power. He's just a physically strong flyweight. Um, if he gets the clinch, good trips, takedowns. He's a good grappler. He's got seven submission wins, though I might have overrated his grappling because I was surprised 
how well Ray Borg beat him in the wrestling army. Now, Ray Borg's a great wrestler. It just I was surprised how one-sided it was. This is a tough one. If you asked me before the Ray Borg fight, I would have felt very confident in taking Bonnerin. Uh, I'm not so sure now. That says I'm still going to pick him based on the grappling ability I've seen in the past. I think he might be able to take Car France down and win a very close decision. Now, I've taken back-to-back upsets with my flyweights. So I'm going to call this a double upset special because they're both in the same weight class. So I'm putting them together. If one of them don't hit, then I'm not getting my upset special. So I'm putting them as a parlay, Tim Elliott and Bunter. And I'm not saying parlay is bet. I'm just doing it for fun. Do not bet because rule number one of betting is never bet on Tim Elliott. But uh, for the hell of it, that, this is my upset special, both of them parlayed. Oh, that is outstanding. I I, I feel this, the same way you do here. Because if you asked me before the Borg fight, I would have said Bontorin is exactly the kind of guy that will beat Kai Car France. Like, he, he can do the exact things that uh, Brandon Moreno and Brandon Royval did to, to beat Kai Car France. Just Borg was so much just stronger and sturdier and able to to dictate the wrestling that it gives me pause. Now, Kai Kara France's other thing is he will initiate the wrestling if he's stung. I mean, that's that's how uh, Brandon Royval beat him. He he hurt Kai Kara France. Uh, Kai Kara France like went for a bad takedown and and Royval got the guillotine. But I don't know if Hadario Bontarin has enough to offer on the feet to put Kai Carfrance into that kind of situation where he's going to shoot for a desperation takedown. And otherwise, I think this only becomes a scramble fest if uh, Carfrance really wants it that way. I I think this stays on the feet. I think Kai Carfrance like wins basically a a kickboxing match. As as much as it would be fun to see it go the other way, give me Kai Carvrance via via decision. Like uh, Tajerio Bontarin, he's kind of in prove it mode for me. We will go back to the well of men's flyweight one more time as multi-time title challenger Joseph Benavidez takes on Askar Askarov. Benavidez, the 36-year-old, is 28 and seven overall. He is 15 and five in the UFC. He is 20 and seven if you combine his UFC and WEC runs. He's taking on Askarov. The 28 year old Dagestani is 12 and 0 with one draw. He is 2 and 0 with one draw since joining the UFC. That draw uh, coming in his UFC debut against Brandon Moreno back in September of 2019. Since then, he has won two straight via unanimous decision over Tim Elliott last January at UFC 246, and Alessandra Pantoja at UFC Fight Night Benavidez versus Figueredo 2. This one is close to a pick'em, but Askarov right now is just barely in the minus money. He's minus 115, minus 120. You can still get Joseph Benavidez at even money as of the time of this recording. Keith, Joseph Benavidez, clearly he's in the final act of a storied career. Uh, One of the Greatest fighters never to win a major title. He's lost two straight, but they're both against Davis and Figueredo. Is his back against the wall in any meaningful way here? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. 
Uh, he's 36. He's 36 in a weight class that isn't known for aging fighters. Uh, I like what you mentioned, saying one of the best fighters who never win a title. It's it, it's sad that I think I've come to the conclusion that he never will. Um, he he's got two losses to the champion. To you know, one was a little controversial because of the weight and everything, but you know, the competition in the match wasn't. It was one sided. So he's got two losses to the champion. You know, he had two losses against Demetrius Johnson when he fought for the title. Like he's always come up short, and then he can't move up a weight class. He's undersized. He's we've seen that before. He's a, you know, and it's a better, you know, more stacked division already. So yeah, he's got his back against the wall. If he loses three in a row, um, like I wouldn't be surprised if we see retirement. Now, um, I'm assuming you want, want me to stop breaking this down. Okay, all right. I don't know if you want to answer it yourself. Um, so Benefit he's. I would say he's legendary for how well-rounded he is. Like he's always been one of the guys. Like, you know, what if I ask you, is Benavides a better grappler or a better striker? Like, it's he's one of the guys that's really hard to to answer that question. And I think if we had ten people, we'd have five different answers. Or, oh, wait, five on five, I should say. Uh, well, he could fight from both stances, though. On the feet, I, I think he's lost a step a little bit. Um, that's crucial for a guy that has always. You know, relied on hand speed. That's always been kind of the thing with Jenna Benavides. Uh, he's a counter striker. Um, he does throw combination, which is good. Though I've noticed with it, they start becoming a little bit more looping. And I'm also worried about his chin. He was hurt by Figueroa in two fights in a row. Like, uh, you know, obviously he was choked unconscious, but I think he was dropped three or four times in, in just that short fight. He's. Well, we didn't see, you know, much on the ground where he could be offensive because he was kind of hurt by figure and reaction. From the most recent I have seen him, he's great in scrambles. Uh, he was never much of a submission threat besides, you know, the Team Alpha Male legendary guillotine. Uh, though uh, I'll give him some credit for his heart. Like, he was able to escape on two really close uh, ran naked chokes in his fight against Figueredo. Uh, he he doesn't always look for a takedown, but he he can you know he comes from a wrestling background. He cuts in gets in cuts the corner well. Muo's Askarov southpaw though, and I feel like I'm a breaking record. It's just something that just keeps happening. They everyone switches stances now. It's like everyone wants to fight from both sides. Though I think he switches stances because he's uncomfortable. In the striking, like he doesn't, he doesn't seem too comfortable. Uh, throw some hard kicks, though. Uh, his last fight, he was getting backed up against the fence, kind of forced to fight off his back foot, uh, and that's because he backs straight up to, to avoid shots. His wrestling is really good, though. Great entries. He's also very like strong. If he just gets a hand like wrapped around your leg, he's got to lift it up and, and take it down easily. He's also relentless with this. Like he'll shoot thirty times to get the takedown. Great top control. Um, He's hard to submit. Pantoja, who's you know a very high level grappler, had several submission attempts on him, couldn't finish him in the fight. So as far as prediction, I think Benavides is. I don't think he's done on the feet. Like I don't think it's it's a weakness. I think he's got to have to do a little bit of like an Alistair Overeem adjustment to kind of watch that chin. I think he's lost some speed. I think he's a little chinny. However, Askarov really isn't the guy in the feet. To kind of expose that, he's going to try to wrestle him. And Benavides is probably still the better striker at this point. 
Um, Asko's going to try to wrestle him. Probably He'll probably get a takedown or two. However, Benavides is always good at scrambling. He's good at finding ways out. Um, as I mentioned, let's not forget he can catch that guillotine if Askarov doesn't set it up. I think we get some really, really great scrambles. Uh, pre-tape study, I was taking Askarov. Post-tape study, uh, I still think Askarov has a lot of improvement he needs to do in his striking. I think he's pretty one-dimensional. And I don't know if Benavides is that washed up where it is. So I it was two fights in a row where I picked an upset in the flyweight division. Let's add to the parley. Let's throw Joseph Benavides in there. We'll have a three-way upset special. So three upsets in a row in the flyweight division. Give me Joseph Benavides to fight off the retirement talk and get a decision. I know we've had a lot of dissension so far. I I mean, before I even get to my actual pick, uh, you know, we both kind of just said offhand how you know, Benavides is, is one of the most accomplished mixed martial artists ever not to win a major title. But even beyond that, just a lot of what the guy has done is pretty remarkable. You know, obviously, you know, you, you look, he's 28 and seven, his seven career losses, uh, you know, two losses to Demetrius Johnson, the greatest flyweight of all time and arguably the greatest fighter of all time, period. Two to Davison Figueredo, the second greatest flyweight of all time, probably at this point. And two to Dominic Cruz at Bantamweight, who at that time was the greatest Bantamweight of all time. And then the one really close loss to Sergio Pettis. So that's the one side. The other side is on the win side, he has beaten everyone else. Juicy A. Formiga beat him twice. He beat Henry Cejudo. And he beat him like, Can it's I, not like he beat. Let yeah, me go interrupt ahead. You, 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 you said it. I agree with everything you said, except you said one thing wrong. Henry Cejudo, the greatest flyweight. Come on, yes. Triple C. No, all right, just keep going. But, Go on. but I well, he certainly he beat Henry Cejudo, and it's not like he beat him when Cejudo was like you know one and one and still developing. He beat him right before Cejudo became the champ, champ. Uh, you know, Tim Elliott, Ian McCall. Uh, just it's ridiculous what the guy has done, and he's one of the. Oh, well, he was. I think he's probably. I mean, he might be the greatest. Uh, of that crop of team alpha male fighters. They used to just be like Russian nesting dolls. They were all the same, just small, medium, and large, but they were all kind of these burly college wrestlers who had effective, but kind of wild striking attacks with lots of hooks because they weren't afraid of being taken down. And, you know, they all loved the front headlock series, you know, whether for a guillotine or to initiate a scramble and, and take the back. He was the first guy that kind of broke out of that. And I said, this guy is a really good striker and he has built a striking game that works around his physical limitations, whether he's fighting at 135, 125. Hell, if the UFC initiated a 95 pound division, he'd probably be the shortest guy in that division with the shortest reach too. He is a tiny dude, but still he, he built a striking game that was extremely effective for him. Uh, just, you know, speed, footwork, volume, but it's always involved him taking quite a few shots. Even in the, the fights where he badly outstruck people, he took a lot of shots. And I think that might be starting to tell on him. Uh, the second Demetrius Johnson fight, he got crumpled by a shot that I think he would have walked through just a couple of years before. Uh, certainly both Figueredo fights featured him being knocked down, rocked, in one case knocked out. As you pointed out, though, with the tools that Benavidez still has left at an elite level and the things that are going by the wayside, Askarov is actually a pretty good matchup for him. Askarov is probably not going to test that chin. And 
Askarov at his best is going to offer Benavidez exactly the kind of fight he wants. As you said, he wants to wrestle. He wants to grapple. Those are things that Benavidez still does well. He's, I mean, he is still, it's just a year and a half from soundly out-grappling Juicy A. Formiga, one of the greatest flyweight grapplers ever. I, I think this matchup favors Benavidez. I know Askarov is a slight favorite, but the level of competition Benavidez has been facing, well, he's faced nothing but Figueredo for the last year, I think maybe making him look a little more shopworn than he is. And conversely, while I believe Askarov is the real deal, the level of competition he's been facing doesn't really tell me how he's going to look against Benavidez. Uh, give me Joseph Benavidez by decision, but just he kind of draws the line and says, okay, you know, I may not be a title contender anymore, but, you know, I'm I'm not your gatekeeper yet. Unfortunately, after he beats Askarov, they'll probably give him another top five opponent and then we'll really be sad. But give me Joseph Benavidez by decision. We move up to the men's bantamweight division with an another intriguing match of up-and-coming prospects between Song Yadong and Kyler Phillips. Yadong, the 23-year-old, although he is rumored to cut age as well as weight, is 16-4-1 with one no contest. He is 5-0 with one no contest in the UFC. No, that's wrong. He is 5-0-1 in the UFC, having defeated... Barak Kandare, Felipe Rantes, Vince Morales, Alejandro Perez, and most recently Marlon Vera in a uh, one-off featherweight bout for both men and a draw with Cody Stamen back in December of 2019. Phillips, the 25-year-old Arizonan, is 8-1 overall. He is 2-0 since joining the UFC. Uh, he was a participant on the first season of Dana White's Contender Series, got a quick knockout victory, but that was season one where everybody who won did not get a contract, so he did not get a contract, but again, is a perfect 2-0 since getting the call up. He fought most recently last October, taking a second round TKO victory over Cameron Else at UFC on ESPN 16. This one, yet another fight on this card that is pretty close to a pick'em. Uh, Yudong is... Minus 135 is the slight favorite. Phillips plus 115 as the underdog. Keith, who do you have in this one? I think it's going to be a fun fight. This is uh, a really good, intriguing matchup. I'll start with Yudong. Uh, he's well-rounded, uh, very technically uh, technically sound on the feet, good power. He's you know, kind of boxing style. He's accurate, uh, high output. He throws combinations, straight shots, stays you know, common his attacks, doesn't waste energy. Not a lot of tells, doesn't really uh, telegraph. Good jab, some real snap on his punches. Uh, calf kicks, though he doesn't really throw the kicks enough when he does throw them. Uh, he's a little bit of a headhunter. Like, he doesn't target the body enough to my liking, which is ironic after I was saying all these nice things about his striking. Uh, he has a good grapple. He has three submission wins. Uh, he can sneak some takedowns in, though he was taken down twice by... Marlon Vera, and I think that was more of a um, just a product of the fight. The fight was so 
intense output war that that's things that could have happened. And when he was taken out, he was able to get back up. Uh, cardio was really good. Uh, like I just mentioned, he had a war against Marlon Vera. It didn't slow down at all. Uh, move over to Phillips. Phillips is also well-rounded, uh, much different. And, you know, he's uh, more athletic, light on his feet, um, elusive, good head movement, fast, hard leg kicks, really steps into him. He also likes those, and as I mentioned, he's an athlete. He likes those athletic attacks, uh, flying knees, spinning attacks, capoeira stuff, very creative like that. Uh, but he's well-rounded. He's good Good timing on his takedowns. He can get both entries, you know, shooting for entries or, like, body lock and get in there and kind of look for, um, like, bear hugs or over-under takedowns, stuff like that. He's good at winning scrambles, looking to advance to a top position. This is a really, really fun fight. I expect it to be back and forth. Phillips is the better athlete. D-Dog is more technical, has faced a better competition. Tough call. I think that experience will help. Like, I've seen him beat better people, so I trust him a little bit more. So give me Young by decision, but I think this is such a fantastic matchup. I'm locking this in as my fight of the night. I think this this is the one that's going to win the award. I have uh, Young as well in in this one. He is he's more experienced. He's a harder hitter. As you say, he's not as as quick as Phillips, uh, not as explosive, but he's he's pretty technically sound. It's it's interesting, you know, of the two of them, Phillips uh, has the striking style that's more what you would expect from like a a Chinese martial artist. It it feels like more of like a, a kung fu type style, where you know, uh, Yudong is basically a boxer with with kicks. Uh, he hits hard. And he doesn't really slow down. Except for the fact that I've not seen Kyler Phillips hurt badly, like let alone knocked out. I'd be picking uh Yudong by by knockout, but I'm not I'm not gonna pick that to happen when I really have no reason to doubt Phillips's chin. But yeah, give me give me uh Song Yudong in a fight where probably both guys get hit a lot. Should should be uh, you know. Uh, a bang him up fight, but Yudong just uh, lands more, lands harder, and uh, wins, you know, two out of three rounds. We now arrive at the feature prelim of UFC 259, a bantamweight matchup between Dominic Cruz and Casey Kenny. Cruz, the former UFC bantamweight champion, the former World Extreme Cage fighting bantamweight champion, is 35 years old. He is a stellar 22 and 3 overall. He is 5 and 2 in the UFC or 12 and 3 if you want to fold in his WEC career as well. He will be facing Kenny. The 29-year-old from Arizona is 16 2 and 1 overall. He is 5 and 1 in the UFC having joined as a two-time vet of Dana White's contender series. Kenny a slight favorite over the former champ, available out there around minus 125 or minus 130. Uh, Cruz still available above even money. He is out there around plus 110. For Cruz, who certainly there were points in his career where you could call him not only the best bantamweight on the planet, but the best bantamweight of all time. Uh, this has been a bit of a falling off for him. He is coming into this fight off of the first back-to-back losses of his career, Granted, those were to Cody Garbrandt and Henry Cejudo, two of the top three bantamweights in the world at the time, at the very worst. But nonetheless, 
as he comes to face Kenny now. Kenny is currently unranked by SureDog as well as in the UFC's uh, official rankings, making this the first time in well over a decade that Cruz will be taking on an unranked fighter, and he is not even the favorite at that. Uh, Injuries clearly have taken a toll, his long absences, and perhaps some of the mystique gone. Keith, how much of the mystique is gone for you, and do you think the living legend has one more great performance in him? Well, that's a good question. So I think you said two things wrong. You said that you know, at one time he was the best man away, and he said at one time he could be viewed as the greatest ever. I think he still could be viewed as the greatest ever, and he should be viewed as the greatest ever. Uh, the other thing you said is that he had two losses in a row. Well, that's because Keith Peterson was drunk and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> have you I, have you checked out like uh, Keith Peterson's uh, like spoof Twitter account? Yes, I saw that, and that was pretty amazing. I don't know who's doing it. <laughs> Need to do all I, that. I, oh my goodness! He, good, good for him. Like uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't. I don't referee prelims and stuff like that. Like, uh, that, I don't know who's doing it, but uh, good for you. Uh, so, Dominic Cruz. So let's. I'll talk about his skill set first. So, he's you know he's always been so elusive. I still think he's elusive. He uses feints as good as anybody because. I mean, I shouldn't know. I don't even know if he uses feints because his whole body is always moving. So I don't know if it's necessarily he's setting up a feint. Uh, obviously legendary footwork, some of the best footwork ever, maybe the best footwork ever. Obviously his cardio is off the chart based on just the nonstop movement, uh, the crazy cutting of angles he does, the weird, you know, he lands punches from weird angles. Uh, one of the best guys to, you know, sidestep attacks, kind of matador style. He can strike while backing up if you if you suddenly crash him. Uh, one thing Dominic Cruz has always impressed me, and I think I said this the last time. I feel like I keep saying that a lot tonight, but uh, Dominic Cruz might be the only fighter I can remember that wins fights by just making guys miss. And what I mean by that is I was in Boston when he fought TJ Dillashaw, and being there live, it seemed – I knew it was a close fight, but I thought Cruz might have had it. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, wow, Cruz is actually having lots of moment of inactivity. Dillashaw is landing more, but he's also missing more. And it seems like that's what Cruz is trying to do. And he just tricks his tricks, you know, the judges into thinking he won because he did what he wanted to do. But it's still like you have to have offense. Um, he, he always carries his hands too low because he relies way too much on head movement. Now, this is where it starts to bother me because as you get older, and I think he's 36, the amount of injuries this guy's had over his career is back injuries, knee injury, hand, foot, everything. He's had everything happen to him. So besides getting older and having a lot of wear and tear and coming off two losses in a row, if you lose any kind of speed, especially head speed, punches that missed before will start connecting. And that's a dangerous game. I already mentioned that I thought TJ Dillashaw beat him. He's a so that's the where where he's striking. Now he's still a very good wrestler. He's got a great reactionary double. He's very good at timing, uh, you know, getting his opponent to think he's going to strike and then timing a double leg, get him down. He has that 
you know, clinch knee tap that he always likes doing. Uh, though I think his takedown offense is grossly overrated. Uh, Dillashaw took him down. Cody Garbrandt took him down multiple times. Uh, obviously, Henry Cejudo took him down, but Henry Cejudo obviously is the you know, Olympic gold medalist, so that's not, that's not too bad. But even back in at UFC 199, Uri Faber picked him up and slammed him. Uh, move over to Casey Kenny. Casey Kenny Southpaw. He's a guy that you mentioned he's not in the rankings, but me and you have talked very highly of him. I said that Cruz is good as playing the Amatador. Kenny, I've seen, does a little bit of both. Like He's good at sliding away from punches and, and getting you missed, but he could also pressure you. Uh, he faints well. He's got some fast hands. He does make the mistake of loading up a little bit too much, trying to you know land everything with power. But to his credit, I haven't really seen him slow down yet. I know in his last fight, they tried to make it seem like, I think that was Nathaniel Wood, they were trying to make it seem like he was uh, slowing down, but that was simply not the case. It was just a high output, grueling battle. He he had, against Alatong Haley, he had one of the best kicking performances in recent memory. I mean, he looked like Merkel Krokop out there. He just kept throwing kick after kick and landing. Uh, his fade back left hand, he kept catching it on Nathaniel Wood in their fight. He targets the body, which I like. He's one of these guys that when he first came to the UFC, he wasn't really known for his striking, and he's made humongous leaps in his striking. Uh, he's a good wrestler. I would even say he's a great wrestler, which I mean, he out wrestled Ray Borger, had at least had moments where he out wrestled Ray Borger. And we already talked about Ray Borger's wrestling. And it's funny because Dominic Cruz criticized him in that match for his wrestling. And I talked to him this past week, Casey Kenny, on the MMA Past, President, and Future show. Cheap plug right there. Go check out the interview. And he talked about that it's you know a little little personal because of you know Dominic Cruz commentating. And Dominic Cruz looks at it as weakness, and I don't think that's a weakness at all. Now, would I give? I don't know who I'd give the edge. Actually, I, I was going to say I'd give the edge to Cruz, but it's. A strictly wrestling match, like that's interesting. Uh, Casey's good at scrambles, and he also does well if you take him down, like he did against um, Rob Davashvili. He does a good job of getting back up. So, as far as prediction comes, Dominic Cruz's last win was UFC 199. That was five years ago. Brock, almost five years ago, Brock Lesnar has got his hand raised more recently in the UFC than Dominic Cruz has. Michael Bisping. Has got his gut in his hand raised more recently. I think he's commentating the fight. The guy he beat that night, Uriah Faber, last, you know, the guy, you know, the guy he beat was Uriah Faber. Uriah Faber, since that time, has retired, came back, and then retired again. That's like the last time Dominic Cruz. And I'm going to say a controversial statement. I've said this about Dominic Cruz. I'm going to stand by it again. Dominic Cruz's hands are slow, they've never been. A, a fast puncher. He he makes up because of all his movement, but he lands shots because they come at angles that nobody else throws him at. So you don't have really a defense for him. But his actual hand speed is slow. And we saw that when he when he was forced to kind of come forward. Is when Cody Garbrandt wouldn't chase him, and Cody Garbrandt's hand speed was just beating him to the punch over and over again. I'm also really worried about Dominic Cruz's chin. I mean, Cody Garbrandt do- dropped him several several times. And then Cejudo, with the assistance of Keith Peterson, took him out in his last fight. 
Uh, I'll still give him credit for his heart. Like he wanted to f- continue that fight. He wanted to. I mean, he did keep getting up against Garber and kept pressing the action. But he's 35, 36, something like that. Uh, and I'm just time catches up to everybody besides Tom Brady. He's taking so much damage. I think this might be a passing of the guard. I think Casey beats him. I think he beats him by decision. And honestly, with all the things going on with his commentary and you know little roles on ESPN, I wouldn't be shocked if we get a retirement in the cage. So give me Casey by decision. Great. Now, we we had a. I, I mean, we we had the the obligatory Tom Brady reference and the obligatory drop of the name of one of his other shows. So we're close to a, a Keith Schillen like hat trick for the evening. I don't even know what the third part of the hat trick is, but we're we're, we're two down for sure. And when uh, I pick against a New Englander. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We have to have like the the picking against a, a local fighter. But <clears throat> I think back to to Cruz's prime, and I think a, a lot of people, myself included, mischaracterized his greatness during his prime. And I'm not saying he wasn't great. Like I'm on board that he might still be the greatest Bantamweight ever, which is saying a lot considering how much what if is left on the table by all of his absences. But yeah, the first thing you think of is that movement, the dance, the bounce. I mean, it almost didn't matter what stance he was in because his figure, his footwork was almost a figure eight. So his, you know, his jabs and his crosses would sort of come from either side. Uh, and yeah, always there to kind of, uh, set up bouncing in and hitting his knee tap. Even he's never been a high volume striker in his absolute prime. When he was like, he was making people look foolish and they couldn't even lay a finger on him. It's not like he was landing hundreds of strikes. Uh, and that's, that certainly isn't getting better as he gets older. Honestly, if, if Cruz was going to drop out of the top 10 for his next opponent and get an up and comer. Kenny is a tough ask stylistically. I think Kenny is capable of the kind of just sharper, faster counter punching that Garbrandt was able to use to really stop Cruz in his tracks. I would say that Cruz's wrestling, his offensive wrestling would be the best, his best route to victory, you know, but the people who've out wrestled Kenny, they're not wrestlers like Cruz. The Marab is a straight up like, you know, he's he's a power wrestler. Ray Borg is a power wrestler. Like Borg got Kenny down a bunch of times, and each time he got him down, he pretty much hoisted him and slammed him because Borg's wrestling, you know, Borg shoots a double, picks you up and dumps you. You know, he's he's a he's a bully wrestler. That's not Cruz. You know, Cruz is is getting in, getting you off balance with that knee tap and just kind of jumping on you as as you crumble. I don't know if that'll work against Kenny. Uh Cruz always used to have the better gas tank. You know, he used to take people down almost at will, but he never sold out on keeping them down because even if you got back up, it's a rinse and repeat thing, and he knew you were going to get tired faster than him. I don't know if that's the case anymore. There's just too many question marks about Cruz, and Kenny just... The development of his game and his current strong points are just in, in the absolute worst places for Cruz to find a really straightforward path to victory. I'm with you on this one. Uh, I I still think there are very good bantamweights out there that Cruz can beat, but like I say, stylistically, Kenny is a tough ask, and I think he is a guy on his way up. I don't think Kenny has peaked yet. He is not currently a top 10 
Bantamweight, but I think he's on his way there. And hey, I mean, maybe we'll even be having this conversation in the Sherdog rankings chat after this weekend. But yeah, give me Kenny in a pretty a, a pretty straightforward win. It won't be just as eye-poppingly just humiliating as Garbrandt you know, like doing the Ali shuffle in front of him just after styling on him for, you know, three rounds. It won't be a finish like uh, Henry Cejudo and Keith Peterson, you know, teamed up on him for. But yeah, like Kenny in an unquestionable uh, unanimous decision. The UFC 259 main card kicks off with a light heavyweight matchup between Tiago Santos and Alexander Rakic. Santos, the 37-year-old Brazilian by way of Florida, is 21-8 and eight overall. He is 13-7 and seven in the UFC. He is 3-2 since moving up to light heavyweight back in 2018. His light heavyweight venture so far consisted of three straight wins over Eric Anders, Jimmy Manoa, and Jan Blachowicz, followed by two losses, his unsuccessful bid for the title then held by John Jones at UFC 239 in July of 2019, and then a third-round rear-naked choke submission loss at the hands of Glover Teixeira last November. He takes on Rakic. The 29-year-old Austrian is 13-2 and overall. He is 5-1 and in the UFC. In that time, he's defeated Franz Marbahos, Justin Ledet, Devin Clark, Jimmy Manoa, he lost a close split decision to Volkan Uzdemir at UFC Fight Night Edgar versus Korean Zombie back in December of 2019. Came back with a unanimous decision victory over Anthony Smith last August at UFC Fight Night 175. Rockage, the taller, the younger man, the slight favorite, is minus 150 right now, where you can get Santos around plus 130, plus 135. Keith? Who do you like in this one? So I just want to say, man, what a fantastic main card. I mean, we, we just finished the prelims and it's a good prelim card. And the main card is, is incredibly stacked. Uh, really, really important light headweight matchup. Santos kind of backing against the wall. Rakish kind of soaring right now. Uh, you know, with Adesanya fighting for the title, if he wins out of mess up, you know, the division and this and that, but really after Glover Teixeira, they're, it's kind of wide open. So that's why this matters, this matters so much. So I'll start with the former title challenge at Thiago Santos. Obviously we kind of know what we get with this guy. So, so explosive hits so hard, uh, switches stances because he has power on both sides. His straight left is really deadly which is surprising because he's not very technical. He throws from his hips. He throws a lot of looping punches. Um, he did, and it was early, and it's too bad that his knee gave out on him against John Jones because he really changed it up a little bit in John Jones. I think that might have surprised Jones because he wasn't springing at him with explosion. He started, like, targeting John Jones's calves. And, like, the very first calf kick he landed because, you know, it's Tiago Santos and he kicks like a truck, added add in the fact that you know calf kicks seem to be so much effective right now. His very first kick he landed on John Jones like knocked him down. Uh, but in his last fight we saw that really bad Thiago Santos come out where his takedown defense is bad. 
Now, he is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, but he really isn't. <laughs> maybe he's, maybe he, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt with a gi on or, or something like that. Uh, but Glover Teixeira smoked him on the ground. I was like passing his guard, cutting, you know, moving position to position, going to mount. Uh, not good. And we've seen issues with Tiago Santos on the ground before. Now, move over to Rakish. Uh, he's a good distance striker. Uh, can f- also fight from both stances. He keeps his. It's funny he has this like double side thing going. He has his right hand. He keeps glued to his face, but his left hand he kind of lowers. He kind of sticks it out there, uh, lowers. Reminds me of um, only guys from New England will probably remember this guy. But Peter Manfredo had this thing where he used to always like. It's a Manfredo thing where they kind of like measure with the lead arm. In boxing, uh, he uses that dropping to throw like an up jab, similar to what Floyd Mayweather does, where it comes from a like downward coming up. He most most of his attacks, though, like I said, he switches stances. Most of his best attacks comes from his left side, so his left punches, you know, his left punches, his left kicks. That's the most more dangerous side from what I've seen so far. He. He will back up a lot. He was doing it against Anthony Smith. He did it against Vulcan Ustamere. He tries, and he does that because he's trying to kind of plant his back foot and pull you into his power. So you're kind of moving forward while he's stepping in. Yoana young Jacek used to do this a lot. Uh, a good example of this was the Jessica Andrade fight for Yoana young Jacek. That's something Rakish tries doing. Uh, he... He had some really, really hard body kicks. Destroyed Anthony Smith with with calf kicks alone in his last fight. He's got good power, but not great power for light heavyweight. Uh, he's a, I think I'd say the same thing about on the ground. He's a good grappler, not a great grappler. He's a much better grappler than Tiago Santos is. Uh, and I think the best grappling we've seen was out of him recently against his last fight against Anthony Smith. So as far as prediction... Santos looked terrible in this last fight. Um, he just looked flat. Maybe it was the the knee injury is you know obviously a question mark coming back from you know major surgery. But on the flip side, this is right after this you know his first fight back after winning a scorecard, a judge's scorecard against John Jones, which nobody else has ever done before, not even Dominic Reyes. If Rockish can you know close the distance and turn this into a wrestling match. Um, he didn't. He didn't turn it into a wrestling match against Anthony Smith. It just happened when Anthony Smith kept falling down. But he did have moments against Volkan Ustamir where he did look for takedowns. However, it keeps bothering me that he backs up to the fence. I understand what he's trying to do. A little Tyron Woodley springing. The problem is a guy like Tiago Santos. He's gonna. You know if he touches you he can knock you out he's one of the hardest hitters in the history of the light heavy division one of the hardest hitters probably pound for pound in all of mma and by backing up to the cage you limit your escape ability you know because you're kind of in that little like you know turn of the curve where they kind of know where you can move and then you also can't move back not that i'm a big uh, proponent of people moving back but it also is a natural thing to pull your head back you lose a lot of space so you actually you're actually giving Santos a better shot of landing the big shot. And I can't well breaking down film, 
I, my mind says you probably should take Rakic. I just can't get that out of my head. So I think Santos is going to catch him with a shot near the cage, and I think Santos is going to put him out. So give me Santos. I'll say by second round TKO. There you go. The uh, upset pick in the high-stakes fight out of Keith Schillen. Keith clearly remembers when Tiago Santos got uh, choked out by Rhode Island's finest, Eric Spicely, uh, back <laughs> in the day. And that, that's what he really can't get out of his head. Uh, I feel everything you're putting down there. I, it, it's This is a fight where I feel as though if either guy really fights to his best strategic advantage, they have clear routes to victory. It's just which guy I'm going to trust to, to do, trust more to do it. And I fully expect that Santos is going to, to blitz out of the gate, like not bull rush across the the cage, but at some point, at several points, perhaps in the first round, he's going to turn it on and just throw a flurry of, of kicks and punches and try to end this thing. It's what he did to Glover Teixeira, and it's only because Glover Teixeira is like all-time tough and has incredible recoverability for a 40-year-old man that he survived the first round and ended up uh, beating Santos. I don't know if Rockets will be able to evade those when they come. I don't know if he'll be able to survive them if they land. But if he does, I, I do think this is his fight uh, to win. It's he could I mean, he could beat Santos in an outside striking match if he doesn't back straight into the fence and trap himself there. Uh, the offensive wrestling, I think, is there for him. I'm concerned about Santos because he looked so flat against Teixeira. Like, was that knee injury just one of those injuries that you never come back the same from? Especially since this is a 37-year-old man who does have a lot of fights on his ledger. I, for all those reasons, I do slightly favor Rockic. And I think it's not going to be the ground steamrolling that the Teixeira fight was, but I think it's going to be the same dynamic in that Rockets will lose the first round, maybe even lose it badly. But I think he'll come back to take control of it, either in a striking match at his pace or by employing his wrestling and just using it to wear down Santos and uh, and win rounds. So uh, give me Rockets by decision in this one. The UFC 259 main card powers on with the top non-title fight of the night as Islam Makachev squares off with Drew Dober. Makachev, the 29-year-old Dagestani, is 18-1 overall. He is 7-1 in the UFC and is on a six-fight winning streak. The last time he lost a fight in the octagon was a crazy one-punch knockout at the hands of Adriano Martins back at UFC 192 all the way back in October 2015. Since then, the names on Makachev's victims list, Chris Wade, Nick Lentz, Gleison Tebow, Cajun Johnson, Armin Sarukian, and most recently in September of 2019, Davi Hamosh. It has been just a tick under 18 months since then, and Makachev uh, is finally back in action. Waiting across the octagon from him will be Dober. The 32-year-old is 23-9 with one no contest. He is 9-5 with one no contest in the UFC. He is on a three-fight winning streak. The last time he lost was a second-round submission loss to Benil Dariush back at UFC Fight Night Lewis versus Dos Santos in March of 2019. Since then, he has defeated Marco Polo Reyes, 
Nasrat Hakparast, and Alexander Hernandez, all by uh, knockout. Most recently, the Hernandez fight in May of last year. Despite that streak, and despite uh, Makachev's long layoff, Dober is uh, one of the higher uh, underdogs on the card. He is around plus 305, where Makachev is out there at minus 345 or minus 350. I'll say that, on the one hand, it's scary to me that Islam Makachev is this high a favorite over anyone after this long a layoff, let alone someone who's on this hot a streak as, as Drew Dober. Dober, if I mean, for those who haven't been watching, he is simply a different fighter than he was two years ago. Uh, I mean, he was kind of this middling guy who bounced back and forth between welterweight and, and lightweight and didn't do anything at a super high level. He was just sort of a well, you know, well-rounded guy and good athlete. Uh, but he has developed into a much sharper striker and he's found power, I think, both by refining uh, his striking technique and by making 155 his home for good. He's just he's become a knockout threat that he wasn't exactly earlier in his UFC career. So on the one hand, it is surprising to me that the line is this wide, but on the other hand, it's not as surprising just because the dynamic of the fight is so obvious on paper. Islam Makachev, he's not Khabib Nurmagomedov. I, I know that there's the temptation to kind of call him the next Khabib. It is shocking that he's only 29 years old, considering how long he's been like the, the next chosen one of the UFC. And I can understand the comparisons. Like they look roughly similar. They're both the kind of, you know, slightly tall for the division yet muscular uh, Dagestani guy. They've even got the same foreguard cut all around, you know, the head and the beard. Uh, they're both very good wrestlers. Uh, Makachev is obscenely strong in the same way uh, Khabib is, but he's not as quick or fluid or as explosive an athlete as Khabib, and he really never has been. Uh, Makachev is a good enough striker, but he is a wrestler. He wants to wrestle you, and he wants to wrestle you in pretty much the same way Khabib does. And because that's what he wants to do, and because he's so good at it, that informs uh, that informs the dynamic of the fight. And it's it's a it's a bit of a weak spot for Dober. I, I think back to something that uh, Jordan Breen said on Sherdog Radio sometime probably eight or nine years ago. But he was calling out the people that assumed that Nate Marquardt must be a great wrestler. He's like, do you just think this because he looks wrestly? Because he's from like Wyoming and he's muscular and he has cauliflower ear? Because, of course, you know, Marquardt was a very good submission grappler and a very good striker, but not a great offensive or defensive wrestler. I feel the same way about Dober. I keep on thinking Dober should be a better uh, wrestler than he is just because he's he's from Nebraska. He's muscly. He's got cauliflower. He, he looks wrestly. Like, I love that as an adjective. Drew Dober looks wrestly. Yeah, he's wrestling. short. He's yeah. like a shorter guy. Yeah. Yeah. I just Good look call. at him. You know, I, I think I, I think I'm looking at like you know, like just Cody Stamen or just you know your kind of typical middle America, just burly wrestler guy. And he's not. This is, I mean, it's not even just a striker versus wrestler thing. It's a a, a knockout artist, need to knock you out guy versus uh, wrestler thing. And at, to that point, it's not even like Derek Lewis versus Curtis Blades, where the guy with the puncher's chance legit has probably the greatest puncher's chance of any fighter in history. 
like Dober's shown some knockout power, you know, but not on like that same level of opponent. So as dicey as I feel about the line here, I understand like where the people are coming from who made that line. Unless Makachev is severely compromised or eroded by his time off, and there's no reason to think he will be, then I think that despite all Dober's improvements, Makachev is going to be able to uh, get him down and make this kind of a grindy uh, wrestling match just kind of at the base of the fence. Like a lot of this fight is going to take place within touching distance of the fence. Uh, and it's not going to be lovely to see. I mean, I'm sure the UFC would love just like a spectacular walk-off knockout like Dober's had a couple of, but I don't think that's coming. I, I think uh, Makachev's going to be able to strike well enough to get his hands on Dober, get him to the fence, get him down, and then I don't see a finish necessarily, but a pretty lopsided decision by Makachev, who just wears Dober down more and more as the fight goes. Give me Makachev by decision. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot to talk about. So first of all, we're going to talk about is Nate Marquardt for a second. We'll go down this rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned him not being a wrestler. Uh, yeah, if you remember his fight against Anderson Silva, we fought for the title. Anderson Silva, he took him down and he was winning. And Anderson Silva actually hit a switch on him. So that tells you everything. Straight up, he, yep. Yeah. Folk so wrestling switch. Oh. Yeah. And, and think about it. Anderson Silva has never, ever, ever been known for himself. That was the one way you could beat him is out-wrestle him. And, I mean, Travis Luter and Jill Sonnen and, the, you know, the guys who had success against him. You know, the one round by Dan Henderson. All right. One more thing about Nate Marco before we move on. And I, I'm glad you set this up. He's supposed to be the a guest on the next episode of MMA Past, Present, and Future, my man. Uh, oh, awesome. And I, say, I say supposed to because uh, he, he doesn't know what his Skype password is. So I don't know if that's going to happen. So uh, <laughs> if if not, uh, if it doesn't happen, I'll throw a switch on him. Uh, to, 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 to this fight, um, so... I get I get really like the the skill set. So Makachev, he's a developing striker, which he he's not like what we talked about Montana De La Rosa, Jalen Robinson, the young fighters who I kept giving a pass. He has developed his striking, but it's still should be further along than you know what I've seen recently. So he's southpaw. He works some feints, pretty elusive footwork, though that footwork. He, when he's on the feet, he thinks very very defensively and used that footwork. And a lot of times he's like low output. I mean, the Davi Hamos fight was, kind of, you know, early on was hard to watch. Uh, his counter left straight is his best strike. Uh, he actually was hurt by Davi Hamos briefly. Um, decent kicks uh, if he gets to the clinch, dirty box. And so that's that's his striking. I, I want to stress again, I don't think he's a bad striker. I just expect him to be better at this point. Um uh, but as you mentioned, this guy's an elite wrestler. Uh, he's got incredible takedown defense. Uh, I, foot sweeps, he was hitting on uh, Armin Sarukian. It was great. And can, can I just pause for a second again? Armin Sarukian, like when I just did film study, Armin Sarukian is really good. Like I, I just did that like, wow. Like he's he's going to be in the rankings, uh, t- top 10, top 15 rankings soon. He's, he's really good. Uh, elite entries. I, I, he also, like, besides being elite entries and his, his ability to get through hips, he chains takedowns again. That's always the most elite wrestlers is the ability to chain takedowns again. And that's something he's really good at. He's good at 
just getting a scramble going and winning a scramble like he was doing against Saruki. There's some really, really fun scrambles in that matchup. Just if, if you like grappling, especially wrestling, you know, wrestling style of grappling, that's a really, really fun fight to rewatch. Uh, if he gets on top, he's a Dagestanian. He does Dagestanian stuff. He grabs your arm. He holds you down. You don't get back up. Round's over. Uh, solid, busy ground and pound. More of a, uh, you know, uh, position over submission kind of guy. I beat you up. And then, uh, you know, then look for a submission. Mubo, Drew Dober, he's also a southpaw, so we could get a little southpaw versus southpaw. He's a good kickboxer. Uh, he's a pressure counter-striker. And, and I know I always use this example. I think it was like Chris Cyborg does that, like marches forward and uses feints to throw, have you attack, and they like to spring off their attack. And that's because Drew Dober has good head movement. He's He likes his, like, slip and rip style. He hits hard. Uh, I agree. He's not Derek Lewis, but... I think I rate his power more than you do. I I, I think he, you know, what I mean, he was beating up Anthony uh, Hernandez with some big, big power shots. He uh, Nazra Hakaras he knocked into another dimension. I I think he's a, one of the bigger hitters in the division. Um, and I think that reason why, and it's funny because this is not something I talk about enough, and I probably should focus a little bit more on footwork. But Drew Dober that stands out to me is his foot placement. He's very good at. He slips his head, but he also brings the foot with him. So he slips on an angle, and, and he moves his foot off the center line. So say his, what I mean by his lead foot, he moves his lead foot off the center line, moving his back foot onto the center line, while also lead, making his power shot on the center line. So when he throws it, it's a straight missile coming down. It makes a lot more power because he really steps into his punch. And uh, that's something I probably should focus a little bit more on. But Drew Dope is one that you really see it. Um, the what, another negative though is he can he can chase a take chase a knockout and he kind of overthrows sometimes and by over when and by overthrowing it leads him to get taken down. A perfect example is his, I think it was Hernandez's last fight. He had Hernandez hurt a lot of time and he got taken down like three times. But Hernandez was rocked, um, and that's the big problem, the big Achilles heel for Drew Dober, is, as you mentioned, is his wrestling. I looked up on uh, you know UFCstats.com or whatever that website is. He's been taken up 14 times in his USA career. If you if you believe those stats, no. The point is, generally speaking, it could have been 12. It could have been 16. Depends on what you count as a takedown. But generally speaking, you get the point. He's been taken down several times. Now, as far as as a prediction, I agree that the odds are, I think, are way off. I think Drew Ber, uh, Dober is, I, like I said, I think he has more power than you do. Uh, I think he's dangerous. I think he's got the, the chance to knock him out the, the body work that you know he can go to it maybe that can stunt some of the takedown attempts so i don't think he's a massive underdog and i really really want to pick him because this love i love his striking style however i feel the same way you do until i've seen him fix the wrestling and now he's going against probably the best wrestler he's ever faced i you know i can't see him stopping takedowns and i expect mashev to not Wanted tested his ability on the feet with Dober, knowing he's going to have a big, you know, advantage in the wrestling, and just take him down, rinse and repeat. He could get a late stoppage. I don't think he will. I think he just wins by decision. And then we start talking about getting him like ranked, highly ranked opponents, like a top five guy next. So, give me Makachev. Give me by decision. Next up is the first of three title fights to cap off UFC 259. This one for the undisputed Bantamweight belt. 
Peter Yan defends against Aljamain Sterling. Yan, the 28-year-old Russian, is 15-1 and overall. He is a perfect 7-0 within the UFC octagon. The victims on that stretch, Teruto Ishihara, Jin Su-sun, Douglas Silva de Andrade, John Dodson, Jimmy Rivera, Uriah Faber, and most recently last July, Jose Aldo, whom he finished off with punches in the fifth round of their title fight. He will be looking at Sterling, the 31-year-old from New York who has uh, more or less patiently been waiting uh, his, his turn in line, is 19-3 and overall, 11-3 and in the UFC, and is on a five-fight winning streak since his last loss, which was to Marlon Marias all the way back in December of 2017. Since then, he's defeated Brett Johns, Cody Stamen, Jimmy Rivera, Pedro Munoz, and in one of the more unforgettable uh, finishes of last year, choked Corey Sandhagen all the way unconscious at UFC 250 last June. This, one of the... Uh, one of the closer fights on a night full of close fights on the books. Jan, just barely the favorite out there around minus 115 right now. Uh, Sterling, close to even money, but you can get him around minus 105. Keith, who do you like in this one? Man, what a fantastic matchup. This is this is a matchup that seemed like most of the hardcore fans are really digging, especially from a stylistic matchup, because it's it's... A very hard matchup to pick. Like, this is the one I flip flopped most on. Uh, shout out to Marcel Dorf, who's you know been on this network, been a host on this network. He tweeted out saying this is his main event, and I understand it's such a good good matchup. Um, I'll start with the champion. Jan. Uh, first thing that stands out to me is how patient and how calm he is, and that's because what we've talked about, you know, on the recap show is how experienced of a boxer is. This is a guy that had like 250 amateur boxing matchups growing up as a kid, and uh, he could fight effectively from both stances. He will just walk down his foes. Though I do think, and he especially did against Jose Aldo, like he's always been a little bit of an issue, like he did against Jimmy Rivera, but especially against Jose Aldo, he spent way too much time like downloading. What I mean by that is like, finding traps, setting traps, then actually throwing. And he had moments to sting Jose Aldo, and he really turned up at the end. But he might have been able to take him out if he started that earlier. And he gives he gives away rounds, or at least makes the rounds closer than they should be. I think it was about like the Jimmy Rivera fight. I think the first and second round, Jimmy Rivera was winning those rounds until the very end. You know, Jan set a trap, Jimmy Rivera walked into it. And, and still the round. But if he doesn't land those shots, he might have been down two rounds of nothing going into the third round. Now, going back to, to some of the skills, he has some serious snap on his punches. Uh, and, and we've talked about guys who like to, you know, admire their punches, not bring it back. That's not, that's not, Jan. Jan brings his punches back to his face just as, just as fast. Not a lot of tell signs. Uh, he doesn't really load up. They come in short. Everything's short. Uh, just a little short twist of his hips. Uh, he does fight from a high guard, and he does this like tur turtle up defense, which I really hate because 
it's something that boxers do where they kind of hide behind their arms and they kind of turtle up. Things that we talked about, uh, similar to what Alistair Overeem was doing at the end of his career. That works really good if you have big boxing gloves and you have two guys fighting with like 12-ounce boxing gloves or even inspiring 16-ounce boxing gloves. That's not the case with the small MMA gloves. So I really don't like that part. Um, I do love, though, and shout out, I think it was Dan Hardy that I showed this on one of his breakdowns and it was fa- fantastic that he found it. He talked about throwing to spots and this is what Anna Silva used to do is what Israel Sanya does. That's all the elite best fighters do they throw to where you're going to be not necessarily where you are and they time it and he times it really good with his hooks and that's actually what he was hurting jimmy rivera yeah i think it was dan hardy that was on one of his shows and it was the jimmy rivera fight um he can wrestle too he's got he'll get a body lock takedown he'll do a trip takedown has a little like judo style to him uh great in scrambles now he has been taken down in his one loss and that was to megamed megamadoff who's a really good wrestler and I actually thought he won that fight. It was a very, very, very close. No, it wasn't controversial. And then he avenged that loss. Um, but if you take him down, he'll just scramble right back. He's very hard to hold down. So I like his skill set a lot, but I also like Aljamain Sterling's skill set a lot. He seems like this is a guy who's been around for you know quite a bit of time now in the UFC. And there was a time when I kind of started giving up on him, where I was like, all right, he's never lived to his potential. But now he is. And, and like how... <laughs> Amazing that he's doing it because he looks incredible. He looks, he just looks faster. Um, he's got really good movement, elusive, and that was always really the case with him. So elusive, great head movement, uh, can strike from both stances, high output. I mean, when you outpace uh, Pedro Munoz, that's really impressive. Long strikes because he's, you know, he's got long, longer uh, bantamweight. Also. Very similar to Dominic Cruz in the style where punches will come from weird angles. Not not the bouncing around style, but just um, a lot of variety. He'll just touch. Uh, he doesn't have fight-ending power, but we have seen him starting to sting guys as he got older. So I think his power is really developing. Uh, I like that he targeted the body of Pedro Munoz. He started adding in like um, spinning attacks, a little similar to you know John Jones kind of guessing with like Go to the body, then come around with like a spinning elbow. Kicks everywhere, leg kicks, can snap a high kick. Uh, Munoz did hurt him to the body, which you don't like. And Munoz had some success with the calf kicks. But we saw last week, Pedro Munoz is really good, and that's going to happen against good guys. They're going to have their moments too. Uh, his wrestling, it reminds me a lot of Michael Chiesa's style. And what I mean by that, he's not a drive through your hips, Josh Koscheck, Chad Mendez, you, your normal wrestler. He's got this long man wrestling where he more gets on you, gets on behind you, and then kind of snaps you by. They kind of like drive, like a, what they call it in college wrestling, to slide by. He like likes stuff like that where he necessarily doesn't have to get you down. He gets, he's got to get by a portion of your hip. And he has those long legs that he can just put those legs in and backpack it. We see that with Michael Kessler. We see that with him. He's also he he talks about uh, a lot that you know he he can shoot thirty times you can stop thirty takedowns you can get thirty one uh, he is relentless like that more against the cage not in the opening like he'll he's okay to like grind against you the cage he's a great grappler I mean he's we saw him uh, what he did the Cor, uh, Corey Sanhagen ran right through Corey Sanhagen uh, Cody Stamen another guy like he backpacked both those guys uh, he's a, a 
you know, obviously a serious submission strike, got eight submission wins. I mean, he hit the Sulu off stretch in a match. So, um, and also Greg Carter, as we talked about, his ability to outpace Pedro Munoz. So, who do I have in this fight? <sighs> Man. <laughs> Jan is a bit of a slow starter. And Sterling comes out blazing out the gate. So that's very troublesome. Um, I feel like it, it, there's three ranges. All the way in, mid-range, all the way out. If it's all the way out, that's really good for Sterling. Obviously, he's a longer fighter. If he can get Jan to kind of chase him a little bit, um, kind of falling on the long punches, that's really good. If Munoz can crowd the kicker, get a little more in the pocket, that's going to be a really safe spot for him. If he can turn into a boxing match and not a kickboxing match, that would be really good. But if he gets in all the way close, whether it be the clinch or just the gra- in the grappling, I don't think it's as big an advantage for Sterling that people think. Like I think Jan can do very well in the grappling with Sterling. But ultimately, that's a place he's not going to win. So if there's three options and one guy has two options and the other guy has one, I'm going to lean towards Sterling. So... I think it's going to be an extremely close fight. I think we have some really, really fun scrambles. Uh, but I think Sterling's going to catch him. I think he's going to catch him in a submission um, with those long arms, those long legs. And give me Aljamain Sterling. I'm picking another upset. I've picked a lot of upsets on this card. I think Sterling catches a submission in the third round. All righty, man. I mean, just so to, to clear the record... I made this uh, pick when I was asked for my off-the-cuff pick on my other show all the way back on Monday, but I'm totally with you on this one, man. Uh, And I see Jan's avenues to victory the same way you do. I mean, Sterling's boxing has been improving. He's been a good kicker basically since he showed up in the UFC, but his boxing is finally starting to catch up to that. He's he's coming up with a, 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 a boxing arsenal that works well for his game. But it doesn't matter that much because Jan's the best boxer in the division. Uh, but I, I'm I'm with you. Like, Sterling, he's not a power wrestler, you know, but he's a persistent wrestler. And he knows that he doesn't even have to get a clean takedown. He just has to initiate a scramble because his grappling is so funky and so opportunistic. I... I have Sterling by probably late submission as well, because I think one thing that might factor into this is that Sterling imposes kind of a relentless pace. And while Jan has been in five-round fights in the UFC and Sterling has not yet, I kind of expect that Sterling will wear that pace better in the later rounds. Uh, Give me Aljamain Sterling by fourth-round submission, and I'm thinking that off of a... Maybe a blown takedown or one guy or the other, you know, being hurt. Uh, it's Sterling who ends up, you know, taking Jan's back in a scramble and and slapping on the choke. But yeah, have put me down for and new. And for what it's worth, uh, if this comes true, this will be far from the last we see of Peter Jan in the UFC Bantamweight title picture. The man is 28 years old, and it's an interesting meeting of somebody in Sterling who, I mean, famously he's been on the doorstep for like, you know, well over a year now, just kind of waiting his turn as he gets passed up by one person after the other. While Jan, even though everybody saw him as a future title contender, got a little bit fast tracked 
just by, you know, the way different matchups played out. But, hell, this might not even be the last time we see these two fight. Uh, I expect a great fight and should be a, a rousing finish uh, for Aljo. Our co-main event and second title fight of the evening is for the women's featherweight title featuring Amanda Nunez versus Megan Anderson. Nunez, the 32-year-old champ, is 20-4 and four overall. She is 13-1 and one in the UFC. She has won 11 straight fights. She is the owner of the UFC women's bantamweight as well as featherweight title. And of all the champ champs that we've had, she is uh, one of the relatively few to defend both titles. Her next challenger will be Anderson. The 31-year-old Aussie is 11-4 overall. She is 3-2 in the UFC since joining as a former Invicta FC featherweight champion. She is currently on a two-fight winning streak, having defeated uh, Zara Farron Dos Santos and Norma Dumont. Uh, both of those represented a bounce back from her last loss, which was to Felicia Spencer via rear naked choke uh, back in May of 2019. Uh, odds prohibitively high for this one, though they have been moving slightly closer. Uh, earlier in the week, Nunez was out there around minus 1,200, which would have placed her among the very highest favorites uh, in UFC history, let alone UFC title fight history. Those have closed somewhat, and you can find her on re reputable sites right now around minus 1,000, so a 10 to 1 favorite. Uh, if you like Anderson in this one, you can get her around plus 700, plus 715. So uh, plenty of money to be made uh, if you believe in the tall statuesque Aussie in this one. I'll go first and say that I don't. Uh, for five or six years now, at least as since her second fight in Invicta, I have wanted desperately for Me Megan Anderson to become a great fighter. You know, the first uh, first couple of fights I saw of hers my immediate thought was this is someone who at some point might be an interesting challenge for uh, at the time, Chris Cyborg, because Chris Cyborg was on a million fight winning streak and she was, you know, routinely punting women into the third row, but they were mostly blown up animates. And my thought for Anderson was, okay, here is a six foot tall woman who is absolutely a real featherweight. Uh, she's a physical specimen. You know, if she, can develop these skills to to go with that frame, like this would be a great matchup sometime down the road. It simply hasn't happened yet. Anderson has some good things going for her. I mean, she does have power, as you would expect of somebody with, you know, that frame and arms and legs that long. She is a hard hitter. I mean, women's featherweight is a bit like men's heavyweight. Everyone seems to hit at least pretty hard. But her her defensive liabilities have just never like they've never fully been shored up you know she's always had porous takedown defense which is what you would expect of a woman whose legs are probably four and a half feet long but you know felicia spencer got her down with ease uh holly holm got her down with ease more worryingly even when she's been like beating up overmatched women She's always been hittable. She always gets hit. And it almost seems to be her approach and her philosophy. Just, I'm bigger. I hit harder. I can take one to give one. And I remember just Charmaine Tweet, of all people, like landing repeated shots to the head. And because of the narrative in my head about Anderson, my thought was, okay, if this was Cyborg, Anderson would already be asleep. 
uh, from you know the number of shots that she's taken from from tweet. That that really that that hasn't changed. It's just uh, Anderson is good and has yet to turn the corner. To this point, I would say that Kat Zingano might still be her only top ten win, and that was a freak eye injury where Anderson's like toenail scraped Zingano's eye. And outside of that, I don't even know if I would have favored her to win that fight. I, I thought of it as a pretty even matchup. All that spells doom against Amanda Nunes. Uh, Nunes is capable of being a fantastic offensive wrestler, which, I mean, there's a liability for Anderson right there. And if Nunes takes her down, Anderson, uh, I mean, she, she'll throw up a triangle. You know, she, she will try submissions off her back, but she's, I mean, she's not terribly you know nimble there or or much of a threat to sweep on the feet Nunez is a very aggressive kickboxer one of the first to adopt that uh brutal calf kick that's now becoming all the rage I mean she's been doing it for a few years now uh Nunez kicks hard to all levels uh her punches I don't think are quite as crisp as her kicks are but they have a ton of zip on them and they don't need to be that crisp like everybody Everybody tags Anderson sooner or later. So as much as I've kind of watched these two fight and have looked for, you know, just possible ways that, you know, that Anderson could pull this out. I just, I I don't see any way that Anderson will pull this out outside of something freakish like the Kat Zingano eye scratch, a, you know, a one in a million, well, not a one in a million, but a one in a hundred submission offer back as Nunez is on top, like wailing on her. None of those are things that I'm going to go out on a limb for. So this is one of those fights where, yeah, I mean, the odds are what they are for a reason. Give me Amanda Nunez uh, and give me Nunez by second round TKO. I'm going to say she beats her up pretty good in the first round because Nunez is a pretty fast starter. And especially at featherweight where she doesn't have to especially worry about managing her gas tank in the same way. Uh she she should put it on her in the first round. Anderson survives the first round. Nunez drops her in uh, the second, finishes up with punches on the ground, and this is all over. Keith, tell me I'm wrong. Uh, so uh, I, I won't give my pick yet. Let me build up to the the suspense. So, I mean, what what does this say about Manny Nunez? I mean, you said everything. Uh, technically, she's flawless. I, I can't find a weakness in her. I mean, she is the consensus goat. There's not a single person besides Scott Coker that would argue otherwise. And he's obviously putting a promotional spin on it. Uh, she's one of the, you talk about her boxing. Like she's one of the best boxers in the UFC, regardless of gender. Uh, she's light on her feet. She's fast. She's deceivingly long. It's like, they always talk about like her, like weird, Long arms that, like, I remember Misha Tate talked about it. Like, she thought she was out of the range, and next minute she was getting hit because, uh, you know, how long she is. She also said, like, how hard she hits. Her, her She stays tight. She's tactical. She can strike while you're backing up. Uh, this, I want to talk about her and Israel Asanya about their vision. She sees everything that comes to her when you're attacking her. Uh, her eyes are always set. She can see it. I like the variety of her attacks that she will mix it up everywhere she's going. Crushing power, you know, uh, leg kicks, as you mentioned, when, you know, attacking the calf. Then you also got to throw in the high kick where she caught Holly Holm, you know, and she's physically strong in the grappling, just a 
strong woman who who looks even better at 145 than she does at 135, which is which is kind of crazy to say. Uh, trip can get take those both some trips, body locks, entries, smother in top game, great takedown defense. She's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Uh, I mean, like I said, I can't find a floor in her. Um, move on to Megan Anderson. Megan is a huge woman, and and I don't mean that as an insult. That this isn't a Sean O'Malley, Casey Kenny <laughs> type way. I mean it. She's six feet tall. Uh, she's she's got long arms and legs. She fights long. Uh, she's just a big bully. And again, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean she was born with physical tools, and that's how she wins by using the her natural size and strength advantage. Uh, I don't think she gets enough credit for how fast her hands is. She's she's actually a pretty good athlete in in speed wise. She throws straight punches. Uh, just your basic one-two combination is what you kind of need when you're her size. She has power. I mean, we saw her one-punch knockout Norma Dumont. Um, she can also fight in close if it's a plumb clinch situation. She can get that plumb clinch, you know, knees come right up to the chin very easily. Uh, she will actually look for a body lock takedown herself. She's got three submission wins. Got a triangle recently on Zara Farn or Farn or how you say her name. Though she's a sloppy grappler. I mean, uh, you just saw that against Holly Holm. Um, she will lose position very easily. You mentioned the Felicia Spencer, how Felicia Spencer took it down. Felicia Spencer did like a like kind of pulled guard and like rolled underneath and then just turned like as she was coming up from rolling underneath, she just turned it into like a really sloppy double leg where she got on the hip and Megan Anderson went down. But I purposely left the wrestling last because Megan Anderson is one of the worst, worst wrestlers in the UFC. Uh, all you have to do is look at the Holly Holm fight where Holly Holm looked like Bo Nickel. Mind you, Holly Holm, <laughs> remember, Holly Holm was the boxing champion. She was the kickboxing champion. <laughs> you know, not, not Tatiana Suarez. I'm talking about Holly Holm. So I've been picking upsets all night. I'm not doing that now. Nunes absolutely smokes her. Uh, she takes it down early, moves them out. Now, Megan Anderson could win. And and to me, the only way she wins is if she wins one huge punch or kick because, you know, anybody can get knocked out. And, you know, being the size advantage, that could happen. Like, I would I would still say I was shocked if that happened, but it wouldn't it wouldn't land on the Matt Sarah, George St. Pierre level because of the natural physical size advantage. But I've still taken Nunes. I think Nunes takes it down. I think because she, she's a – one thing I didn't mention about Nunes how intelligent she is. Let me take the Jermaine Deronomy fight. Like she might have – could have stand up and sl- slugged it out with Jermaine Deronomy in, in, you know, in her second matchup. No, she's like, I have a huge advantage on the ground. Let me just take her down. So I think she takes it down. I think she mounts her probably three minutes in and wins by TKO from ground to pound. Amanda Nunes, and then the harder question is not how she beats Megan Anderson, or or it's gonna be like who's next. That's what's gonna be harder talking in the recap. Who's next? There you have it. Two emphatic picks for the lioness to hold on to her 145 pound belt. With that, we arrive at the main event of UFC 259. A match for. The undisputed light heavyweight title as Jan Bohovic tries to prevent 
reigning middleweight champ Israel Adesanya from becoming the newest reigning two-division champion in the UFC. Bohovic, the 38-year-old, is 27-8 overall. He is 10-5 in the UFC. Adesanya, the 31-year-old Nigerian by way of New Zealand, is a perfect 20-0 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 9-0 since joining the UFC. Most recently defeated Paulo Costa in a completely humiliating thrashing at UFC 253 back in September of last year. Despite the fact that Adesanya is the one moving up in weight uh, to try to take the second belt, he is a comfortable favorite. He is currently out there at around minus 225 or minus 230, so a better than two to one favorite. Uh, Bohovic and his legendary Polish power are out there uh, available around plus 190. If you if you if you believe in them, I'm intrigued by the what I see as the difference in stakes in this fight. When I mean, when you have a fight like this, it tends to be more of a win-win and less of a risky scenario for the smaller fighter moving up. Anyway, his belt isn't the one that's on the line, and well, he's the littler guy. It 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 matters, but because of the way Blahovich won the title. And because of just, you know, kind of how Adesanya has dazzled us since arriving in the UFC, if Blahovich beats Adesanya, to me, I think it, it'll be dismissed in some ways as, well, you know, he's, he's still the middleweight champ. He's still this kind of generational talent. Just, you know, he, he went up, he bit off more than he could chew. You know, the old, the old Polish guy was just too big and too strong. If Adesanya beats Blahovich, even if it's a close fight, a classic fight, there will be the narrative out there that Blahovich is the high-level journeyman who got lucky and got on a hot streak right when John Jones left the division. As grossly unfair as that is, like I think that'll be part of the narrative. I, I mean, I'm in the comment section of Sherdog Columns. I'm I'm out on Twitter and in the forums right now, and there are people that are just clearly locking and loading that narrative for the result of Saturday's fight. It's just, it, it's interesting to me. I'm not going to call it a double standard because obviously they're coming from two very different positions, but just the different stakes that each guy have on the table for their own, for their own legacy. I mean, let me know if, if you are feeling any of that dynamic and let me know who you think wins this one. All right. So, yeah, I, I, I totally understand where you come from. I, I really like that you pointed out the person going up never has the pressure on them. They are the smaller fighter, as you mentioned. There's not their belt. I mean, we've seen that. You know, we've seen guys who've moved up many times recently and it worked. And then, but, you know, let's not forget the guys who did it. Max Holloway lost to Dustin Poirier when um, BJ Penn lost to George St. Pierre. Like the times that happened, there was that always out. So the pressure, I think, is on uh, Lahovich. But I don't think it's. That is going to have as much of an effect in Blahovich because he's always kind of been looked past. Like he's never was the guy he was supposed to win. Oh, can I interject Good. one thing no. real quick? Yeah, sure. Blahovich has been the underdog, betting underdog in eight of his last ten fights. <laughs> he was, and he's he's gone eight and two during that time. He was an underdog to Devin Clark. He was yeah. an underdog to Nikita Krylov. He was a two to one underdog against Luke Rockhold, who was moving up in weight off of a brutal knockout loss. Yeah. Just anyway, yeah. That's yeah. the extent to which we have kind of underestimated Blahovich. Eight out of his last ten fights, he's been the underdog. 
Yeah, and I just think about of those guys, there's been a couple guys who've moved up to try to take him out. You mentioned Luke Rocco. Jacare was another one who moved up and didn't work out for them. So um, I don't remember if there's anybody else, but, you know, third time's a charm maybe for Adesanya. I'll start with the champion, Blahovich, which it's funny you saying that. It it doesn't seem like he's a champion. Um, So he fights from both stances, though he's better from the orthodox stance. Uh, Good jab. He can be overly cautious at times, kind of kind of boring at times. Um, but he has crushing power. We we've seen that uh, a lot in his new run, especially I think it was his last two fights. Both were uh, really good knockouts. I mean, Corey Anderson was just a little short right hand. Uh, I think Reyes was a left hook. I'm not sure. I can't remember what he caught. I think it was left hook. He caught Reyes. Just basic shots, just short, tight shots. His his left hook is you know his his money punch. Uh, I like that he attacks the body. Uh, he was doing that against Dominic Reyes. Uh, he's a little flat footed, you know. He's not. I don't think he'll ever be categorized as a great athlete. Uh, he drops his hands to block the body. I saw that against the Corey Anderson fight. That's actually the thing that I when I picked Dominic Reyes to beat him, I thought it might be something where. You know, you throw a kick, he kind of reaches down. I thought that was something that Reyes could exploit, but that was not the case. He It was a pretty one-sided affair. Uh, his clinch striking is really good, though. Like, if he can get in close, he'll beat you up there. And his takedown defense at one time was terrible. Like, he was one of the worst wrestlers on the roster. Now it's probably a strength. Um, I... Somehow skipped over his kicks. I, I apologize because I jumped right to the grappling. Uh, good kicks to the body. We saw that against Reyes. Also good light kicks. Um, now, yeah, like I said, his takedown match is probably a strength. And he's he's a Brazilian just to black belt. Uh, I wouldn't put him Damian Maia, but I would put him a little higher than Thiago Santos if I was, you know, categorized in black belts. I mean, he, he, he submitted Nikita Krylov, which is, um, a, you know, a good, good win on your record. Um, move over to Adesanya. I don't know if I said this before, but I'll say it now. So there's a lot of guys that are fun to watch on film. Israel Adesanya is my absolute favorite to study on film. And because he's the guy, like, I feel like he challenges me to learn things when I watch him. Because, like, I have to learn more because he's just on levels that, like, beyond my understanding of, of the game that I really want to learn. Uh, I think he's the best striker in MMA history. He has all the tools you want in a striking sense. He can fight from both stances. He's extremely calm. He's got length. He's the master of distance. I've, we've talked about before where he can fight in, you know, your three basic striking all the way out, mid-range, all the way in. I mean, there's other – before anybody says there's many, many different other ones, but your three basic uh, speed – Accuracy. I love his slogan. He doesn't pray and hope. He aims and fires, which is his thing. Uh, faints with both his hands and his legs. You know those hip turns over. He freezes opponents with his uh, faints. He was doing it to you, Romero. Uh, he's so intelligent. Where he just sets traps. Get some of the best vision I've ever seen. I mean, you just look at the. Brunson and Whitaker fights where they, you know, went to attack him and he just saw everything was coming, was easily dodged away from those attacks. Uh, he does hang his hands low, and I think that's like kind of baiting you to chase his chin because he's got incredible hand, head movement where he just slides out of the way and puts himself uh, in range. That's what he caught 
uh, Robert Whitaker with. Blends punches and kicks together flawlessly. He when he'll attack, he'll attack. You know, come out with a blitz. He'll switch his stance in the middle of blitz, so you get different angles. So not only does he hit you in different angles, but when he's done striking and it's your turn to counterpoint, he's in a different, completely different stance than when you last kind of when you hit behind your strikes. Uh, kicks everywhere. I, I talked about it last time. He's got to land this question mark kick. He didn't do it uh, in the last fight against Costa. But he's thrown this question mark kick that kind of grazed people. He's he's going to connect with someone, and he's probably going to knock him out with it. Uh, and his power is, you know, you look at his frame, and you say, how does he just starch people? It's because of where he places punches. He just lands so clean. Like, you know, a lot of guys, not, not going, it's not the most clean punch. He's, he just lands slow and clean. One of the things we talked about in the past it was Kelvin Galveston that had success was by pressuring Adesanya and really forcing him on his back foot. Well, he's fixed that too. I mean, Robert Whitaker tried pressure him, got knocked out. When Coster finally went into pressure him, he got knocked out. Um, I was talking to a friend who called him one-dimensional, and I think that's the laziest. And I love this friend; he's a great dude. I hope he lets listen to this. I'll call him publicly. It's just a lazy assessment because we haven't seen him lose to anybody on the ground. Just because he's so good at one area, people assume that he's one-dimensional. The one time I remember him getting taken down was in the Kelvin Gaslam fight, and he threw up a triangle choke and almost caught him in a triangle. Um, you know, briefly. It wasn't like, you know, wasn't the greatest triangle, but, you know, briefly. Uh, he's really intelligent, like what I talked about, where if the fight get, starts getting close and, you know, in the close range, he'll initiate the clinch first. So he puts himself on the offense. I've seen him do some trip takedowns in there. He's got good hip placement. Um so as far as the prediction goes, it's you know it's speed and technique versus just raw power. Uh, I Adesanya is talking about weighing in 193 pounds or at least under 200 pounds. If that's the case, he's going to be giving up 20 or 30 pounds to Jan Blachowicz. However, he probably gave up that much size to Paulo Costa last fight, or pretty close, and and that didn't phase him. I'm amazed by Adesanya. I've been saying a while that I think that's the guy that becomes the next star of the UFC. That's who I'd be putting, you know, my backing behind. And um, I hate picking against Blahovich at this point because it, it, it's it's kind of what I tell you with Derek Lewis. I was picking against him, and he proves me wrong. And it's kind of the same thing. And he's going to be bigger. He's a better striker than I'm giving him credit to. You know, all the all the above. I'm I'm a fan of him. Like he seems like such a good person. When he that that uh, I don't know, was it Instagram one of these videos where he came off the the plane and his whole country like seemed like his whole country came out to greet him. You know, you have like a kind of journeyman who got that moment. Like that's one of the nicest moments to see. You know, uh, a very unlikely thing. So I hate picking against him. But dude, I just is on another level. I think he's special. I think I'm going to be in the sure dog forums arguing for him to put him way higher in the pound for pound rankings. Not only – so I made my fight of the night pick. I had this crazy upset parlay, but there's one little superlative award I haven't put out yet, and that's my lock of the night. I'm locking Izzo Asanya in. I'm saying he wins. I'm saying he knocks out uh, Jan Hovitz. I see he does it in the third round. Give me – Israel signed it by knockout, my lock of the night. There there you have it. A confident pick for Adesanya to become the newest simultaneous two-division champ in the UFC. And 
it's hard for me to argue any of those points. When this fight was first announced, my immediate off-the-cuff thing, because, I mean, they, they started talking about this as soon as Blahovich won. It's like Vulture started to circle. Like, Blahovich won the title, and within 30 minutes, John Jones is tweeting, should I go back down and get my belt? Israel Adesanya is like, I, like poor, poor Jan. Like, everybody just thinks this dude is chopped liver, and my... Before I started thinking about anything stylistic, my off-the-cuff reaction was, we've been underestimating this dude for like three years now, and he keeps answering the call. Maybe this is going to be another time when he shocks the world, but it's it's hard to see how he does. I think he's, I mean, he's always been a, a pretty good striker. He's a substantially improved one, but against Adesanya, that almost doesn't matter because the best strikers Adesanya faces are the ones he outstrikes the worst and embarrasses the worst. I mean... Uh, leaving aside Anderson Silva, which was basically, you know, three rounds of hard sparring with one of your, with one of your heroes. It's almost like, you know, uh, fantasy baseball camp for, for Adesanya, but like Whitaker and Costa, probably the two best strikers he's faced are two of the guys that he embarrassed and just completely outclassed the most thoroughly. Uh, Gastelum was able to pressure him because Gastelum, I think had the threat of the takedown as well as, you know, good boxing of his own, but even if I were to say, hey, maybe Blahovitz just completely sells out for the takedown, look where that got Derek Brunson. Like, Brunson just sold out for the takedown, and Adesanya danced circles around him, and just like, I mean, was almost like punching him in the back of the head standing because Brunson would just run so far past him. It was, it was embarrassing. He really is on just another level in terms of how he sees, like, you, know, you talk about vision. In terms of vision... Obviously, his physical reflexes are beyond elite. His technique is beyond elite. But as far as the mental side of the game and and the vision, it, it really is on another level. Uh, he's one of those people that just clearly sees what's going on in front of him, like in slow motion. Uh, and because of that, yeah, I, Blahovich can last for as long as he wants to make this boring, but he's not going to make this into the Romero fight. Like, Blahovich will go first uh, if he has to. And he has the power to end it, but I'm not going to pick him to be the first guy to land on Adesanya cleanly like that. Uh, it, it is a shame, and it would be great to see Blahovich pull off the upset, not because I dislike Adesanya. I mean, I love seeing greatness, uh, but yeah, just for the reason that Blahovich has been such such a great story, and it would be great to see him teach us our lesson one more time about writing the guy off, but I don't think this is the fight. Uh, I think Adesanya... Uh, pieces him up. You picked a third round finish. I'm, I could feel that. I'm gonna go uh, second round just so we have a little bit of difference here. Just, uh, and I bet, I bet he shows us something we haven't even seen from him before. Maybe this is the time he lands that question mark kick because it's been a matter of inches before. Nobody's ever in position to block it because they don't know where it's coming until he, you know, he flips it and all of a, all of a sudden the foot's coming up uh, at, at their head, but. Maybe this is the time he lands that, but yeah, uh, give me Israel Adesanya by some sort of sensational finish, and then the the questions will just be immediate. You know, what's next for him? What's next for the division? There you have it. The Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 259. Blahovich versus Adesanya, or UFC 259, everything but the kitchen sink. UFC 259, 
we're sorry for what this lineup is going to do for our next six uh, weeks of fight nights, whatever you want to call it. Uh, one of the most stacked cards in recent memory. Enjoy the fights. Join us uh, through the SureDog front page or just simply go to the SureDog YouTube page for the recap and reaction immediately afterwards. We will take your questions and comments through the comment section and break down what is sure to be a sensational night of fights. Thanks for listening.